0: Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Sunday, uh, this is December the 10th, 2006. Only 12 shopping days left and 13 shopping days left until Christmas. So uh, be sure to purchase your good cheer and presents and goodies for everyone in your life. Um, So we're going to have a a brief chat, uh, which is um, uh, just a, a topic that came off the board today. And then I'll open it up wide to anybody who wants to chat about anything. But I wanted to start to talk just a little bit about this question of enemies. Now, of course, I've talked about this in the podcast around uh, your dark side and making sure that you don't project your own uh, semi-nefarious impulses onto other people and then call them bad. But uh, there's a gentleman who's been posting some rather wild uh, things. At least they're wild to me. Maybe they're not to to other people. But there's a gentleman who's been posting some rather wild things uh, on the board, um, which is around how It's a darn good that we're keeping these terrorists in Guantanamo and it's really just terrible how uh, awful these Muslims are and it's really just terrible uh, how evil they are and how much they want to kill us and how we've got to enslave them and we've got to, you know, control them and we've got to imprison them and so on. And I just wanted to do a couple of minutes on my thoughts about that, and we can open it up then to either topics that you're interested in with regards to that or any other topics, but I just thought I'd have a little uh, go at the topic myself. Now, I have not done a podcast on Islam yet. I've sort of touched on it briefly at various points. And uh, Islam is uh, a nutty, crazy, uh, corrupt, uh, nasty, fundamentalist religious ideology. No question. I mean there's no way that a rational philosopher and an atheist is going to be able to miss that basic fact about uh, Islam. It's profoundly irrational and uh, anti-freedom, anti-independence. There's no particular Arabic word for secular. Uh, There is a great deal of sexual uh, strangeness and fetishism and uh, so on, uh, particularly around the uh, endless capacity of women to betray those who don't control them and that women are always responsible for uh, sexual problems or sexual Attacks and so on, so there 's an enormous mess about uh, islam they don 't recognize the separation between spiritual and secular, and they don't uh, they 've lost their sort of rational history which they had far in excess of the uh, European nations up until um, they sort of went stagnant around the sixteenth or seventeenth century at the same time as ironically enough, right the rediscovery of Aristotelian philosophy that began to propel things like the uh, the Renaissance also the rediscovery of Roman law, a lot of this was kept by Arabic scholars during the Dark Ages in the West, when Christianity would, was at the height of its powers in terms of its relationship to the state. So it's kind of ironic, of course, and quite sad that the West went through this process of rediscovering the Greek philosophers who were, in every sense of the word, relative to the Dark Ages and relative to uh, modern Islam, were secular philosophers. I mean, the of course, um, uh, Socrates had some sort of lip service of piety to the gods and so on, but they were secular in a way that's kind of hard for us uh, to, to understand now because we've had such a quite a considerable history of, of quite uh, strong religion right, since, since then because they were polytheistic, and polytheistic always has a secular basis because polytheism doesn't have just one god. And sort of one good God and one evil God, um, although, of course, the Christians have the three-in-one God, uh, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, all in one God. Uh, good luck with that Gordian knot. But it's kind of ironic that the, um, the Arabs uh, you know, were far in adv- invented the zero, right, far in advance of the West in terms of mathematics and uh, science, uh, and kept all of the secular philosophers from the Greek era and the Roman era and the Roman laws, which were essential to the founding of a city, that they hung on to all of these things and then the West uh, gratefully received them uh, and the Catholic Church gratefully received them and this began to spark some quite considerable thinking and of course um, uh, Aristotle was such a popular philosopher in the sort of Quattrocento going into the, uh, the Renaissance that he was simply referred to as the philosopher. It wasn't even like Aristotle the philosopher. It wasn't even one of many philosophers. He was just the philosopher. That's really all. It was a huge craze, right? He was the um, uh, the uh, Britney Spears of his time, uh, in ways that uh, probably metaphorically don't work in any way, shape, or form. But I think that you, <laughs> I think that you uh, uh, reason, baby, one more time. Hit it, baby. No, I'm kidding. I won't. Uh, <laughs> I won't get into that. Yuck. a uh, Greg, look, Aristotle isn't that bad. You don't need to say yuck. I mean, I know you're there for Britney, but Aristotle really isn't that bad. You should give him a chance. You know. So it is to kind of ironic that um, when the West was self-destructing on an orgy of fundamentalist Christianity, the Arabic uh, world was hanging on to the rational philosophy and keeping the science of mathematics and, and certain aspects of science alive. And then, of course, the West uh, took uh, uh, the Aristotelian philosophies back. Uh, that uh, triggered the Renaissance, which tr- triggered the Enlightenment, and I apologize for going so fast, but uh, I, you know, I want to take up everyone's day with some history, but... Um, of course, uh, uh, what happened is that uh, uh, the Arabic world was you know, fairly largely uh, self-contained and insular, as these kinds of societies tend to be. Um, and then when, the, uh, uh, when oil became something that was of value to the West, right? I mean, oil was just considered up until the early 20th century or late 19th century, oil was considered a filthy and useless byproduct of other industrial processes. And the Arabic world, sitting on a bunch of oil was sort of pointless. You know, it didn't really mean anything to anyone. It was just a bunch of junk under the ground. Uh, Ever since, of course, the Arabic world has uh, been seen to be sitting on a gold mine, there's been a constant tug of war about resource control and, of course, the West with its uh, superior technology. This is what always happens, and it's really quite depressing, if you don't mind me jumping into something that's a little depressing. Uh, Freedom breeds economic success, uh, breeds excess capital. Excess capital gets taxed by the government, which uses it for foreign conquest. So Uh, Freedom leads to uh, domination, dictatorship, and and horrendous and murderous foreign policies. Freedom at home leads to freedom, uh, sorry, leads to dictatorship overseas. Dictatorship overseas leads to dictatorship at home. It's the awful boomerang of freedom that uh, you, uh, you get an enormous amount of economic wealth generated from freedom. The government's feast on it grow, feed armies that initially invade overseas, which provoke hostility towards the domestic front. Uh, which then causes uh, rights to fall away like leaves in autumn on the domestic front. So uh, it is quite a a chilling boomerang that happens when you get free. It it is, of course, our hope and goal here that one day uh, the world can be free without the profits of freedom and the excess capital generated by freedom without that ending up feeding the warmongers and the lords of war uh, who then use it to uh, destroy the freedom of others, uh, corrupt the domestic population com- corrupt the military, corrupt the police, and so on and so on so so basically, the twentieth century has been an enormous tug of war back and forward between uh, imperialist um, uh, powers on the west uh, going into the Arab world and uh, uh, you know, installing governments and tearing down governments and I think one of the most one of the early and successful coups from the CIA was in the early fifties in Iran when they installed the shah and There has just been an enormous amount of meddling. Uh, The Western countries um, supported the creation of the oil fields in Saudi Arabia and Iran and Iraq and the creation of uh, canals and so on. And then the uh, Arab governments uh, took these over. And this, of course, once the Arab governments realized that the European and American powers were exhausted from the Second World War, they immediately nationalized all of the. Um, all of the oil companies that were owned by the mercantilist, not free market, but mercantilist British companies and French companies and uh, German companies. And so basically what happened was you gave an enormous amount of power by creating these uh, oil wells and uh, oil concerns, the demand for oil, you gave an enormous amount of power to the ruling classes in the Muslim world. And so as the power of the ruling classes in the Muslim world grew, so did the radicalism and the fundamentalism and so on, right? So uh, the... um, Uh, The Muslim world feared this collusion with the sort of average Muslim or the imams feared this collusion of the leaders with the West and began to radicalize further and further and further. The roots of violence, I mean, go really deep, right? They go really deep. And you can get a sense of this, of course, when you see that the Muslims can get inflamed by the Pope quoting some guy from the the 13th century, right? It's that recent to them, right? I mean, it is that immediate to them. This is a place with a long and ugly history, uh, and of course, there's no question that the, the, the sort of theology of Islam is, is as nasty and brutal as the fundamentalist philosophies behind Judaism and Christianity. Right? We like to say, well, Islam is the bad religion and our religion is the good religion, and that's all complete nonsense. Um, in their fundamentals, of course, the Old Testament is the common root for Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And Christians have this belief, then, that a new covenant was put in by Jesus Christ, which was made things a whole lot nicer, which is all complete nonsense as well, of course. There's a couple of nice things that Jesus said in amongst a whole bunch of, uh, of other things that uh, Jesus said that were not so nice and were actually pretty genocidal. So people really do like to sort of split this stuff up and say, well, there's a bad religion, and that is a, a sort of fundamental misapprehension of the nature of religion, right? If you say there's a bad religion it's like saying there's a bad murderer, right? By, the, by very implication, then, you say there's a good murderer. So if you split uh, Islam into bad religion, and then Christianity and Judaism into good religion, then you're not doing anything to arrest the general escalation of violence in these kinds of uh, of mystical and superstitious realms, right? Uh, somebody on a libertarian board that I occasionally, or a libertarian uh, email list that I'm on, was talking about how, you know, we need to return to Christian values to uh, save our social values and restore the family and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I just wrote back and I said, I do not not think that human beings will ever become free, free through superstition, right? And it's hard for us to understand that Christianity is just another form of superstition because we see lots of other good things about it. Uh, you know, it's got nice songs and the stained glass is pretty and, you know, it's part of our general cultural references, but uh, it's nonsense, right? I mean, Christianity is exactly, uh, the, Islam is exactly what Christianity was, three or four hundred years ago. And for us to say that the Muslims are just bad and we are good is a complete misnomer. If you and I were brought up in the Muslim world, it is almost absolutely for sure that we would end up believing all the nonsense that the Muslims believe. And it is that fundamental lack of empathy for what goes on with these poor people who are trapped over in these horrible dictatorships and raised by these crazy priests and... uh, uh, child abuse in these kinds of religious contexts is rampant, as we know from certain aspects of the Catholic Church. The 5,000 priests involved in child abuse, and those are just the ones who've been caught. So if we don't have any empathy for the people on the other side of the world who are, slaving, uh, who are slaves groaning under the worst kinds of dictatorships, which are theological dictatorships um, and mystical dictatorships, whether it's this mysticism of communism in the realm of class or mysticism of religion in the realm of gods, Uh, People who suffer and groan under these horrible dictatorships, if we can't find empathy for them, which doesn't mean approving of what they believe in, and it doesn't mean not fighting the false ideologies that they're trapped by, but if we think that they're just bad guys and we're good guys, all we're doing is we're throwing more gasoline on the fires of history, more violence into the realm of the world, more conflict, more hatred, more hostility into the world, that we do need to find a way, as I've used this metaphor in a podcast, that we are um, we are livestock of the state to a large degree and we have a certain amount of freedom over here in the West which we can treasure uh, and which we need to defend and, and reclaim. But uh, there's a much more brutal farmer over there who's treating his cows much more harshly and so his cows are sick and some of them get rabid and some of them are you know, uh, hostile and some of them you know, attack their own young. And, and, and we go and we say, well, those cows are really bad and we're really good. Well, the key thing to look at is the difference in their environment. If the difference is in the environment, in other words, if most Muslims end up being Muslims because they were raised in a Muslim society, then we have no virtue. for the We cannot claim fundamental virtue for the rationality that we possess because it's simply an accident of having not been born in a Muslim society. And if we then say, well, no, we're virtuous and our, our more correct or more rational or more humanistic kind of thinking is the result of our just being better, then we have to find some fundamental biological difference between ourselves and other people in the world, like the uh, the Muslims or whoever. So I think that we definitely want to hate, you know, the the Christian thing, right? Hate the sinner, hate the sin, not the sinner, right? We hate the irrationality, and we should work very hard to continue to expose and undermine the irrationality of these ridiculous, superstitious belief systems. While at the same time recognizing that we can have far more effect on the irrational superstitions here at home rather than uh, projecting all of our fear and hatred of superstition and all of the destructive things that come with superstition onto people halfway across the world that we can have very little effect on. So I just wanted to talk about that sort of briefly, that um, I'm not saying let's have sympathy for terrorists. I mean, I hope that nobody thinks that I'm going anywhere like that. But um, we, uh, sort of the collective we as a culture, our governments have done some pretty horrible things over there. Right, Half a million Iraqi children killed by our governments in the 1990s and then all we do is have no understanding or idea of why there's hostility towards us and we just make up all of these silly reasons and call them evil which is fundamentally enormously irresponsible and I would say it's really adding to the hatred, hostility uh, and uh, violence in the world. So so that's the end of uh, <laughs> the introductory statement. Thank you so much for your patience in uh, as I sort of work through this sort of stuff. I'm certainly happy to entertain questions or objections if if people have them, um, if uh, if people want to uh, to switch topics, that's fine with me as well. This is just the one that uh, kind of uh, uh, floated up for me today. But uh, feel free to click on the uh, hand the mic if you have uh, questions. Okay, good. Well, that's uh, that's just fine. Uh, no problem. So what I'd like to talk about then, and I'm certainly uh, oh, let me know if anybody starts raising their hand or uh, issuing foot was just let me know. And uh, there's one other uh, topic topic that I had that I wanted to talk about, which was this, uh, something's come through, uh, this came through my email, I haven't verified it, but uh, it seems to be uh, consistent with information that I've heard before, so I wanted to talk about this, and then if people want to move on to other topics, that's fine with me as well, but let's chat a little bit about the land of prisons Uh, This is from James Vicini at Reuters. I haven't verified this. It seemed to come across the wire yesterday, but it doesn't seem to be uh, far off from other stats that I've seen, so I'll just sort of read bits of it, and uh, then we can talk a little bit about what this might mean. Uh, U.S. imprisons more people than any other nation. Washington, December the 9th. Tough sentencing laws, record numbers of drug offenders, and high crime rates have contributed to the United States having the largest prison population and the highest rate of incarceration in the world, according to criminal justice experts. A U.S. Justice Department report released on November 30th showed that a record 7 million people, or one in every 32 American adults, were behind bars on probation or on parole at the end of last year. Of the total, 2.2 million were in prison or jail. According to the International Center for Prison Studies at King's College in London, more people are behind bars in the United States than in any other country. China, note China has four times the USA population, so making the USA figure comparable to China's, we need to multiply it by four or 8.8 million prisoners compared to China's 1.5 million prisoners. So our USA incarceration is nearly 600% higher than China, a repressive communist country. The, uh, um, China ranks second with 1.5 million prisoners followed by Russia. With eight hundred and seventy thousand. See, because this is how America has won the battle against dictatorships and communism, which was fighting throughout World War One and World War II, is it now has an incarceration rate six hundred percent higher than China. The US incarceration rate of seven hundred and thirty seven per one hundred thousand people is the highest, followed by six hundred and eleven in Russia, five hundred forty seven for St. Kitts and Nevis. In contrast, the incarceration rates in many Western industrialized nations range around one hundred per one hundred thousand people. Groups advocating reform of U.S. sentencing laws seized on the latest U.S. prison population. Figures showing admissions of inmates have been rising even faster than the numbers of prisoners who have been released. The United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated population. We rank it first in the world locking up our fellow... uh, Sorry, we rank first in the world locking up our fellow citizens, said Ethan Needleman of the Drug uh, Policy Alliance, which supports alternative to the war on drugs. We now imprison more people For drug law violations, than all of Western Europe, with a much larger population, incarcerates for all offenses. Um, We send more people to prison for more different offenses for longer periods of time than anyone else. Drug offenders account for about 2 million of the 7 million in prison, on probation or parole, King said, adding that other countries often stress treatment instead of incarceration. Commenting on what the prison figures show about U.S. society, King said various social programs, including those dealing with education, poverty, urban development, health care, and child care, have failed. And as will, of course, come to a shock to we market anarchists. There are a number of social programs we have failed to deliver. There are systemic failures going on. A lot of these people then end up in the criminal justice system. Kent Scheidegger, legal director of the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation in California, said the highest prison numbers represented a proper response to the crime problem in the United States. Locking up more criminals has contributed to lower crime rates, he said. The hand-wringing over the incarceration rate is missing the mark, he said. Scheidegger said the high prison population reflected cultural differences, with the United States having far higher crime rates than European nations or Japan. We have more crime. More crime gets you more prisoners. Julie Stewart, president of the group Families Against Mandatory Minimum, cited the Justice Department report and said drug offenders are clogging the U.S. justice system. Why are so many people in prison Blame mandatory sentencing laws and the record number of nonviolent drug offenders subjected to them? So that is really quite a fascinating um, uh, topic. We did have a gentleman who has asked to, uh, to say something, which, of course, I'm more than happy. Let me just see if I can find him. He had a... Uh, uh, yes, there is a chat. Sorry, if somebody can add Jared to the chat, that would be excellent. Uh, let me just see. There was somebody else who had... Uh, somebody, uh, somebody else, who, let me just see if I can find them. There are also people that are, oh, yeah, so, uh, okay, if you're still online, uh, I'm just going to see if I can get FlashGOT86, if he's still around. It says that he's offline, so, but I don't want to miss him if he's got something to say. Can you see a FlashGOT over there? No. He has gone. Well, I guess he was waiting for me to, uh, to end my uh, speech. Uh, not always the wisest thing. Now, of course, this uh, is uh, really quite a horrifying statistic when you think about it, right? One out of 32 people currently in prison—it's uh, really quite astounding, right? So, if you had a class, uh, what's it? if you had a class of uh, 3,200, uh, you know, people in your high school, which was not far off from where I was, then 100 of those people are currently in prison, and there's larger proportions of those who are on parole and so on. Uh, this is, of course, a significant amount of terrorizing of the domestic population. There's no question of that. There's no question of that that uh, when somebody goes into prison, uh, it is very hard for them to get their life back into any kind of substantial order. It's almost, I can imagine that it's almost impossible to get back into the middle class after um, uh, people uh, uh, end up uh, going through the prison system, having that black mark on um, on their resume. And also, of course, as we know, the, uh, the, the problem with uh, uh, heterosexual rape in prisons is enormous. Uh, the problem of violence and terrorization is enormous. The additional trauma uh, that comes from locking people up together uh, who are you know have gone through significant traumas themselves uh, of course, large numbers of these people come from single families and numbers of criminals uh, single family uh, of course have largely uh, increased as a result of failed government programs like the welfare state and so on and so we have uh, just a desperately terrible situation and this is really quite amazing. You know, again, there's this, there's this empathy, I think, that we just kind of need to develop. It's, uh, it's like I'm I'm almost asking people in a sense to sort of grow a third eye or grow a third arm. And yes, that's really cool when it comes to juggling, but also if we can sort of grow uh, our heart to larger dimensions to feel empathy for the people who are uh, living in an absolute human hell. Uh, within uh, the prison systems. And Amnesty International has come down very hard on the U.S. prison system for its brutality, its overcrowding, its violence, uh, its corruption. Uh, you know, I don't think that prison break is entirely fictional uh, uh, based on sort of reports that I've I've read and seen. And uh, if we can then have also empathy for the people who, gosh, you know, I mean, if I had been born, uh, to take a totally cliched example, and I apologize for the insensitivity of this, but if i have been born in a ghetto, to a single mom with drug dealers all around, with nobody able, with, uh, being unable to get a job, with uh, shivs and guns in my school, where would I have ended up? Well, you know, statistically, the odds would have been enormous that I would not have ended up in a very good place. And that's the kind of empathy that we need to have. This is the kind of empathy that we need to have. If we continue in our minds to subdivide the world into good and bad, and when we see the disparities, in people's lives, right, when enormous minorities and, and groups of poor people are ending up in prisons for good chunks of their lives and are threatened with continual incarceration and all of the attendant horrors that go with that, if we don't empathize with their circumstances, then all that we will continue to do is to continue to blame individuals for systemic problems. And I'm not saying that there's no personal responsibility. I'm not saying that there's no such thing as free will. I certainly believe that there is. But, you know, there's free will and then there's a circumstance, right? There's free will and there's circumstances. There's, there's nature and there's nurture. And these two uh, aspects of human motivation and and where people end up in life are incredibly complex and incredibly interrelated. And if we don't have compassion for those who are trapped in these nightmarish environments, right? then we really are not going to add one frickin' atom to the freedom of this world. If we continue to blame the Muslims for being Muslims and the people in jail for being in jail, despite the fact that the statistics are very clear about the factors that lead you to be a Muslim, i.e. you grew up in a Muslim country. And the factors are entirely clear about why people end up in prison, that they grew up single parents, uh, single families, poor, uh, public uh, na- sorry, uh, a uh, public housing neighborhood. Uh, there's lots of things that make... Very high predictors, right? And and you can't claim universal and infinite free will if these statistics are so associated with particular kinds of outcomes in people's lives. So it's very much like there's a. This is sort of my metaphor, and you can sort of. This is not an argument, this is a metaphor, so (laughs) you can do with it what you will, see if it makes any sense to you. It's like there are a whole bunch of different kinds of fish in a lake. There are a whole bunch of different kinds of fish in a lake. And some fish are more sensitive, for various reasons we don't have to bother about. Some fish are more sensitive to changes in temperature, and other fish are more adaptable to changes in temperature. And the whole lake starts heating up. The whole lake starts heating up. And some of the weakest fish uh, die. right? And then the strongest fish look at the weakest fish and say, well, that's pretty weak. What a bunch of weenies. They should have been tough like us. Right? And then the lake gets a little bit hotter, and then some of the kelp die. And like, well, those kelp are always kind of sickly, stupid kelp. They should have worked out. Weaklings. And then the, the lake gets a little hotter, and another kind of species of fish die. And uh, people are like, oh, this is bad. Other fish must be poisoning us. And, you know, get angry at the fish in other lakes or whatever. But you can sort of see the progress that's going to happen, right? And there's that old statement that was uh, spoken about in the Nazi times, right? I think Reinhold Niebuhr, who said that, you know, they came for the gypsies, and I did nothing. They came for the homosexuals, and I did nothing. They came for the trade unionists, I did nothing. They came for the communists, I did nothing. By the time they came for me, there was no one left to help me. And this, of course, I'm not trying to equate the two situations, but I am going to say that when we read statistics like 2.2 million locked up in the rape rooms of U.S. prisons, yeah, there are some bad guys in there who need to be uh, separated from society, but, boy, I'll tell you, the vast majority of people in there that's a whole boatload of bad luck in their lives. And a rational society would never find that as a viable solution to the problem of crime. To lock, If people come from bad backgrounds, abusive backgrounds, make bad choices, don't get me wrong. People come from bad backgrounds, abusive backgrounds, and you lock them up in rape rooms where there's constant violence and threats. You are only adding fuel to the fire. Right? Once you start putting people in that environment... You are guaranteeing that they are going to fail when they get out. You are absolutely re-traumatizing them, uh, re-provoking all of their defenses that come out of a brutal and violent childhood. You are absolutely generating future customers for your prison systems. And, of course, it's the government. So we recognize that the government is not interested in helping people. The government is interested in finding ways to justify its increases in money. Right? We know that the government is not interested in getting rid of poor people because poor poverty was a problem being very, very well solved. Before the government got involved in the welfare program, from the mid-50s onwards, uh, sorry, from the early 50s onwards, poverty was decreasing by a rate of one percentage point a year. The free market, the rising tide was lifting all boats. The free market was dealing perfectly well with the problem of poverty. But of course, when, uh, if the world turned perfect tomorrow, the government would have to invent crime and poverty. Because if everybody was nice tomorrow, the government would have to start importing bad people. Oh, wait, that's what they're doing through their foreign policy. So so this is something that we have to really understand. When more and more people end up in jail, it's because we're in a lake and the temperature's getting warmer and warmer and warmer for all of us. And we can either figure out what underground pipeline that we can stuff up is heating up the lake or we can just blame the weak fish for dying and call them uh, bad and call them malevolent and call them losers and this and that. So we can't uh, have any more compassion as Dostoevsky who said that you can judge this uh, civilization by how it treats its prisoners. And he knew this, of course, as a prisoner in Tsarist Russia. Uh, He was arrested uh, um, for socialist activities or revolutionary activities when he was younger, was locked in a jail cell for seven months uh, in solitary confinement so perfectly complete that not only was no light let into his prison, but the guards walked up and down the hallway in felt boots so he couldn't even hear anything. Dragged out, Uh, put in front of a firing squad. Uh, They were about to pull the trigger, and then his sentence, it turned out to just be a lesson that was being uh, put upon them. His sentence was commuted to 10 years in Siberia. He wrote a terrifying book called Memoirs from the House of the Dead about his time in Siberia. So he knows something. And of course, if you read uh, Solzhenitsyn's uh, um, books about the the Gulag Apigalanga, books about, uh, they can only dream in the Stalin's time about uh, how wonderful Dostoevsky had it uh, in his own Tsarist prison. So we do need to uh, have empathy for those who are being swallowed up into this ever-increasing more of government power. And if we don't, then uh, we certainly can't expect those who come after us to have empathy for us. Uh, we may all be privileged, and I'm sure the people who are uh, listening to this are all not afraid, as, a, as neither am I, of being arrested or being incarcerated or these kinds of things. But if we cannot find it in our hearts to have compassion for those who are currently being brutalized by this kind of power, it's going to be very, very hard for us to turn this this um, this particular trend around and try and find a way for uh, less state to occur instead of more state. So that was my second topic. Look at that. I've done two in 35 minutes. See how wonderful it is when I'm not interrupted? Just kidding. I like the interruptions. So we have a question uh, from N.Graphic. You are more than welcome to speak, sir. Mute. Uh, hello, go ahead.
1: Uh, yeah, I was just like to say something on that last comment, and that uh, governments should be afraid of their people rather than people be afraid of their governments. That was
0: well. I think that's perfectly. Uh, I think that's perfectly right. Um, this is uh, at least I myself uh, an anarcho-capitalist or market anarchist, which means that I don't think that you can ever have a situation where governments are afraid of their people, because governments uh, through the power of taxation can pay for lots of soldiers oh, and lots of policemen, right? So I think that the only solution is a balance of power where there's no centralized use of force. Certainly governments that have <laughs> the power of deduction at source income tax uh, have nothing to fear from their people, right? I mean, if you, everyone's got to live, and if every time you, you go out to earn a dollar or a pound, 50 cents or 50 pence goes to the government, the government has nothing to be afraid of. And certainly the government has broken free of any kind of restraint from the sides of the people over the last 100 years or so and uh, yeah. you know, certainly is heading in the wrong direction that way. Please,
1: go ahead. Yeah, and just another point on, on that, and that there comes a time when, should the government become oppressing, that the the people eventually would probably have enough and some sort of revolution would occur, either uh, socialist, nationalist or anarchist, as you were just saying just then. But uh, I think there, there, there comes a time uh, when the government... It may not be afraid of its people, but the, the people will overrule it eventually. You'd hope so, anyway.
0: Yeah, I, th- I, th- I certainly agree with you. I think that you're right. Otherwise, I'd sort of be digging my own grave here. But I certainly do think that um, that uh, the, uh, the governments do self-destruct because uh, the people in the governments just want to make as much money as possible. And when the government get, get debt gets too large, they just start grabbing everything, as they did in the Soviet Union. And very quickly, the government collapses socially uh, and flurry fiscally. What happens after that... It has a lot to do, or I think has just about everything to do, with the kinds of ideas that are floating around, right? So if you look at sort of the, um, the Weimar Republic uh, in Germany in the 1930s, when the government ran out of money after this hyperinflation and the war debts that the Allies put onto them with the aid of the United States coming into the war, the, um, uh, the, the government collapsed, and the generally accepted solution to all problems In Germany was more government, right? So the worse the problem, the more you should have the government. And this, of course, is we're sort of, I think, teetering on the brink where we are as a culture. People are becoming skeptical of government solutions, but still, there's this knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, there's a problem? Let's have a law. Oh, there's a problem? Let's have, oh, uh, terrorism is hitting us despite the fact that we have a Department of Defense and FBI and the CIA and foreign policy and this and that. Let's have another government department. Let's now have a Department of Homeland Security and everything's solved, right? So this idea that whenever there's a problem, we need more government. Uh, it, it, government then creates more problems, which requires more government. You get this ever escalation until you get a kind of collapse, which is what happened to the Soviet Union, of course. You, you don't. Even need key, to look I'm at sorry, the... let me just finish my point, and then I'll turn it. Oh right yeah, right sorry. To yep, yep. But um, the, what's absolutely key is for us to keep talking to the de- <laughs> to the degree with which people will be willing to listen to us and say that the problem is the use of force that the government represents. Violence doesn't solve problems. Government solutions always involve violence. And therefore, when the crash hits, uh, people will say, well, the problem was government, not a lack of government, and then I think we can go in the right direction. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was just saying, you, you don't need to, to look uh, in, in the past terribly far uh, to the likes of the Soviet Union or uh, Imperial Germany. I, I mean, there's, there's certainly I can speak from my point of view in, in Scotland there's certainly been uh, a lot of questions asked of the government of uh, Scottish soldiers being used as cannon fodder in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, and its oil and all its other resources being plundered for every penny that it's worth Uh, and come 2007 I think that uh, the people will speak in the referendum and and hopefully we'll uh, get our independence back.
0: Oh, so, yeah, tell me a little bit about what's going on there, and uh, partly because I sure love hearing me a good brogue. I actually spent some time in Scotland when I was younger, but um, what is going on with this uh, independent stuff over in Scotland?
1: Well, in in the last year, uh, I, I must excuse me if, I, if my statistics are wrong, but uh, apparently 45% of Scots now support in, uh, Scottish independence, uh, followed by 35% of English want Scotland to be independent, which, uh, says a lot of things. There's, there's always sort of violence between the two countries. Uh, hopefully we can do it through peaceful means by, uh, voting and, uh, that's what the, the 2007, uh, May elections will, will prove hopefully rather than going down the, uh, the, albeit more romantic sort of armed revolution than uh, everything like that, but it, it's going to happen one day, uh, so I suppose England better get, start getting used to the idea.
0: Yeah, but if you guys do end up going down that road, you might want to do it while they're still tied up in Iraq, right?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the the Easter Rising when Ireland uh, claimed its independence, uh, Britain was fighting in the, the First World War, which sort of stretches uh, the troops rather thin, so I think, Uh, You never know, either North Korea or Iran. If that comes up next on the thing, I think that should definitely be the turning point.
0: Well, it certainly would be a. um, a, I I can't imagine that that uh, England would retake Scotland in military. I mean, in order for violence to work, uh, people have to not really get the uh, humanity of the people who violence is being used against. Right, that's sort of what I'm arguing here. So it's okay to go and you know, who knows Iraqis, right? There, there's like, you know, towel heads and whatever, right? These are awful terms that are associated with them. You can't, uh, you can't have any sort of base empathy for the humanity, of the people that you're using violence against. So the people who are in prison are considered to be just bad guys and the terrorists are just insane bad guys and the, the uh, Muslims. But I think that if, if, the U- if the UK went across the border into Scotland, you know, we've all seen train spotting. We're down with the brogue. We, you know, we know what's going on. We have some empathy, so it would the brutality. We can picture it from the other side, and brutality usually only works if you can't picture it from the other side, or at least there's a good excuse not to.
1: Yeah, uh, just uh, uh, one final point. I promise. Uh, the, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So I, I'll leave you with that.
0: Amen. Absolutely. You just got to go back to what was it, George? The uh uh, second or third, the guy who was in charge of the uh, the colonist uprising, or uh, in the uh, United States, right? I mean, they they were rebelling against the government that was imposing a two percent tax, and now the U.S. government, which replaced the British government, is taxing at fifty or sixty percent, and that doesn't even count the deficit and the debt. So it is just amazing that there would be any kind of objections from the uh, American government for people uh, having a tax revolt or something like that. So uh, let me just see if there's anybody else who has questions, issues, or comments. Feel free to bring them up. Now's the time. Just click on Request Mic, or you can mention it in the chat window and speak to like-minded freedom fighters uh, of, of, uh, of the rational and peaceful persuasion, for those of our friends who are listening from the state. Um, is he back? Flash Gotti? He says uh, still wanted to dog. Oh, Greg's flashing? No, he's not flashing on my screen, so it doesn't... Uh... <laughs> Thanks, honey. <laughs> me just uh, find him on our list. Uh, he's got quite a few people in today. Hello, everybody. It's Stefan Mollede from Freedom Main Radio. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Let me just go down and find uh, the name of the gentleman who wants to chat now. It's so much. It was so much easier when we first started this, and there was, like, nobody in here. So. Ah, here he is. Okay. Uh, one sec, Greg. If you'd like to warm up your vocal cords, um, you're up.
2: Okay. Um, can you hear me?
0: Yes, yes, please go ahead.
2: Okay. Um I just had one quick comment um and I kind of dropped this in the chat to uh fighting for independence isn't the same thing as fighting for freedom. Just because you've freed yourself from the British government doesn't mean you've doesn't mean you're free. You know, just just because because I mean, if you take the American example for uh for instance, uh which, which you mentioned yourself. Um, sure, we we threw off towards the, the Third, but uh, what, what we now think is uh, freedom is you know, uh, one in thirty-two Americans in prison. Right, so uh, there's a long, there's a big gap between independence from one form of authority and freedom.
0: Uh, I certainly agree with you. Uh, I I agree with you, obviously, that substituting one master um, for another is not particularly helpful. But I will say that I would certainly be at a very utilitarian and practical level more in favor of a multiplicity of states without a centralized federal. Like, if a bunch of U.S. states decided to secede, and this, of course, was the whole idea behind the original U.S. Constitution, to have a very weak federal uh, government and a very strong states' rights government, the reason being that the Founding Fathers had the goal or the idea that competition between the states for citizens would keep uh, freedom to a maximum, right? So, uh, of course, they kind of missed the whole thing with the slavery, but, uh, you know, they're not perfect. But um, uh, what, uh, what I would say is that um, uh, if there's a multiplicity of competing governments... Uh, competing for resources competing for especially where there 's no language barrier, right, which is a little different from the uh, eec, but where you have if, if like fifty or fifteen or five u s states seceded from the uh, uh, federal system, you would see uh, a greater competition for freedom. This is why secession is not allowed right this is why any uh, any um, uh, state that tries to secede from the union is going to have as Lincoln pointed out quite a degree of difficulty in doing so. But I would certainly say that if Scotland seceded from the United Kingdom, they would be removing one layer and there would be a competition, although it's not quite a foreign language, it's not that far, there would be some competition which um, uh, the governments would then have to give people some more freedom uh, in, order to, uh, in order to woo people to come and live there, I guess, especially if it's Scotland, which is a little on the rainy side and cold and chilly and briny and incomprehensible. But uh, does that sort of make any sense?
2: Uh, well, in, in part it does. Um, Yay! I got a part. Woo. <laughs> if um, if there had been, if there had never been any federal government, if, for example, we were still operating under the Articles of Confederation, I might be inclined to agree with you that this whole notion of competing states is the best. Um, is the best you can have, but 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 that's not really what we had after the Constitution was enacted. That you know, that whole parity of power amongst all the various states, you know, the the and wasn't really parity in the purest sense that, there either. But still, once there was an overarching authority on top of all of that, you know any you know any pretense toward competition between the states, I think is is a bogus notion.
0: Yes, I certainly agree, but uh yeah, I know I I certainly do agree. I certainly do agree. I mean, I would not feel bad if Scotland were to achieve independence from the uh the UK, but I also wouldn't say that this is libertopia.
2: Right. Right. So when we when we talk about fighting for freedom, I I just think I think it's important to make sure that we clarify that 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 may be, you know, one incremental step way down at the bottom of the ladder, but it's not really, uh, you know, let's not pop the champagne corks quite yet, right?
0: No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> so, uh, that was all I had in mind. So. Oh, uh, now okay. If you haven't, I don't think anybody else has got their hand raised at the moment. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. We do have one uh, gentleman who wishes to have a chit chat, um, Doctor, six two f- eight two five. Uh, go ahead. He, hello. Justing. Sorry. Let me just. I'm just going to try. Can you try it now? All right, uh, Dr. 62825, if you'd like to try again. Oh, but there was no technology. Perhaps his mic is not uh, working. Perhaps he has less. All right, so um, if anybody else has any questions or comments, uh, I have nothing but topics up my sleeve, so uh, I'm certainly happy to keep chatting, but I don't want to uh, keep anybody else out of the conversation, because I get to talk all week on my podcast, so I definitely do want this to be a little bit more interactive, uh, so don't make me come over there and turn your mic on. I will. You know, I have this eerie, eel-like ability to slither through wires as a TCP IP packet, so uh, I will I will show up. Uh, <laughs> it'll be like that, what's that, Visa ad? It's like, hey, can you check this guy out? And he pops his head out of the screen. Don't make me do that, because uh that's hard on the forehead. So, uh if you have any questions or issues or comments, feel free to uh raise your hand or to say so in the um uh in the chat window. My wife is monitoring it like a hawk to see if there's anyone. Have you been doing that? <laughs> monitoring. Yes, she is in fact monitoring like a hawk. If you don't have a microphone, you can chat in the cha- in the chat window, and I am certainly uh, happy to um uh I'm certainly happy and that's quite right. I'm certainly happy to uh, entertain more uh, more responses, uh, but uh, if people don't have anything to say... Um, oh, do you speak Italian, sweetie? Somebody has said, Priamimi, please. I think that means butter me, doesn't it? Is it baby oil, butter? I just assume with Italians it's something sensual. Uh, something oily and sensual, I was going to say. oily could be more correct. Uh, All right, so as we wait for Greg to complete his thoughts, um, or to complete his sentence, perhaps I should say, uh, we will, I'm just going to check and see if there's anyone else coming in. I don't want to jump over other topics if there's somebody who is coming in
3: very briefly.
0: Please let me talk. There are also people that want to add something. I think they do not speak English, somebody says. Well, that uh, certainly could be the case. Is something coming up there? All right, Mr. G, uh, I'll let you uh, make the case because we're still waiting for uh, people to respond, so go ahead.
2: Okay. Um on that on the first that's on the first topic, the, the level of imprisonment you were talking about there. Uh one thing I was kind of curious was if they included any kind of statistics and and it seems they there was a mention of um I guess uh of drug crimes, but uh um the point I'm getting at is that um the the elevated prison population um uh, on the one hand could be seen as uh, you know something indicatively wrong with uh, you know American culture as you know some kind of um violent uh, uh, something that has violent underpinnings or it could be seen as depending on the, the crimes for which these people are in prison it could be seen as a um, an indication of the fact that our government is uh, be, be, has become overly oppressive and without any detailed statistics it's it's kind of hard to tell you know which is which I mean unless you infer from the fact that we have an impressive government that that uh, it, you know that
0: that in itself is indicative of a, a sick culture right so is the uh, is the government a mirror of the culture or is the culture a mirror of the government is that sort of your uh, Innocent, so is that the idea?
2: Yeah. in a sense yeah
0: and I'm sorry to be succinct everybody knows that really is against our philosophy just before <laughs> we go to that though I just wanted to say that I I, I um, Uh, Marco says, yeah, Afro Power. And (laughs) I just wanted to put that out to my home fellows out there in the hood um, that uh, Marco, I certainly appreciate that. I'm definitely down for Afro Power. Uh, Good thing I don't have my webcam on or I'd be doing some uh, breakdown moves. But uh, if you can see the picture of me, um, there are two major reasons why Afro Power wouldn't uh, apply to me. Um, I'm sure I don't have to. Say what they are. So, um, uh, Greg, would you like to continue, or shall I pick up the thread? Did I manage to blow away your train of thought completely, or you pretty much derailed?
2: Me. <laughs> Yay! <laughs>
0: um, look, uh, I, I certainly, uh, I think it's a complex question, but fundamentally, I don't think that we can. Th- there's a culture that's chosen, right, and then there's a culture that's imposed. Uh, th- those are those are sort of two two kinds of situations, right? So. Um, if you and sort of back to the beginning of the the show today when we were talking about the Muslims, right? So you're raised in some you know crazy Muslim culture or just Muslim culture. I think we don't have to be overly redundant, but um, and you're sort of you know you're rocking back and forth and you're beating your head against the book and you're chanting and you're moaning and you're supposed to be having all these ecstatic visions and you're beaten if you don't learn learn how to recite some dead language, which also happens, of course, in the Jewish you know, faith as well or certain aspects of it. Um, And, you know, there's an enormous amount of hysteria, and and everyone's having visions like you saw Borat, right? So it's like uh, everybody is shocked and appalled that this guy wants the tears of a gypsy to break a curse. And we laugh because, ha-ha, that's just so crazy and superstitious. Uh, But then, of course, he goes to this Pentecostal Pentecostal revival, and uh, I guess to a lot of people, that doesn't seem quite so crazy though, of course, that's the whole point of satire, right? Get you to laugh at something outside of your culture and then show you front and center how it occurs within your culture and get you to get... That's why people from... That's the outsider coming into your culture is an old technique or staple from that. But, sorry, you wanted to talk about the wrestling scene? Oh,
2: well, I was just going to say that that, that's, that scene in Borat was incredibly creepy. I, You know, it reminded me a lot of what was in uh, um, Jesus Camp videos. It, you don't think that that
0: you know that that's out there somewhere, but you don't think that that's such a large part of your own culture until you, you see it front and center. You know. Yeah, no, it's it's enormous, particularly in the states. But you know, and where and where, of course, we up here in Canada will laugh about the United States and it's so religious, but we have this addiction to government-run health care, which is a complete and total disaster and gets lots of people killed. Right. So, uh, you know, again, it's just so easy to laugh at other people and so hard to look in the mirror, right? We all love to project our dark side onto other people, right? So we all like to say, oh, those religious people are crazy. And, and like, but as we've seen from recent debates on the free domain Radio board, even those who claim to be philosophical and rational uh, do have a certain amount of challenge with that at times, right? It's always easy to be angry at the state, and it's very hard to look at our own capacity to be corrupt, right? Our own capacity, as we saw with the prostitution debate that occurred on the boards and in the podcasts um, over the last week or two, right, where people get to, they're all riled up about freedom, and then you point out something which is maybe their own capacity to corrupt, to be corrupt and to corrupt others, and suddenly it's like, oh, you bastard, <laughs> let's get angry at the government again. Let's not look at me, right? So there is definitely that aspect where um, uh, our own craziness does escalate state power, but our own craziness is not innate to our nature because the government has us uh, in um, in sort of two ways when we're children, two very broad ways. The obvious one, of course, as you know, is public education, which is the 14 years that you spend being drawn on about the virtue of the state uh, and uh, uh, your parents send you, right? So it's a very difficult thing to say. That's kind of like indoctrination and my parents are kind of culty when it comes to the state. I mean, people have a tough time, but that's a pretty emotional thing to... And people kind of get, as you get in these sort of Christian camp things or these Christian environments, people kind of get, they say like, okay, if I'm going to step out of this box, where the hell do I go? Like, I'm raised here, like, oh, we, we, we don't fold the flag and have it touch the floor, and we love George Bush, or we love John Kerry, and we're we're pro the troops, and, and we love Jesus, and we love God, and, and this is the whole world that you live in. If you say, huh, I'm going to rub a couple of brain cells together, compare this against objective reality, maybe use a little bit of reason in the scientific method, I'm going to step outside of this cage, well, To most people in their minds, it's a cage hanging in space, right, with an infinite drop outside the bars, right? So they say, oh, I'm going to open, hey, there's a door here, that's cool, I can open this door and go through, ah, you know, they fall forever. At least that's their fear, right? I mean, so to step outside your own culture is very hard, and so the government obviously has government schools and so on, but... And, of course, it has a lot of influence over the media, right? As, you know, you've got got the FCC threatening fines and threatening to review everybody's lineup if they do the wrong thing. And uh, also, um, as we've talked about before on the show, the media needs constant feeds from government for information because it's a whole lot easier to read a government press release than to go out and actually do investigative journalism, right? So that's why uh, the, the media has largely, particularly newspapers, as I pointed out in the show before, you read through a newspaper, like 95% of it is just crap that comes handed out from the government. I mean, we laugh at Pravda as a government arm of, of media information from the, uh, I guess, the uh, the Soviet period, but we're not that far off ourselves. I mean, you, you can't say boo about anything true, and uh, you have to keep your government sources alive. So so we're kind of uh, – and this is not even to mention the stuff like the, the welfare state and the war on drugs, which corrupts entire communities and, and all of the, the horrors that's part of all that whole situation – so, we kind of are living in a kind of government environment overall, and that's what children are born into, and that's all that they see and As you and I know, and as other people know who are going through this process, if you do start to think for yourself, God forbid, then your family who and your friends a lot of them who claim to love you like family and like friends are supposed to. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, that was only while you were chanting along with the rest of us, right? That's only, (laughs) I mean, if you take the red pill, uh, sorry, we can't be friends or family anymore, right? So if you actually do start to sort of ask questions, uh, people know kind of in their gut that it's like if you really start to ask questions, it's not that you get to step out of the cage, you get thrown out of the cage, (laughs) right? I mean, people don't have anything to do with you anymore, right? So that is a real challenge for people. There's a huge cost to it. Uh, There's not a whole lot of benefit other than, you know, there's integrity and there's general peace of mind and happiness. But that comes after the storm and stress of getting your personal relationships sorted out when you become philosophical and rational. So I think that it's much more around the state is creating the culture at the moment, right, rather than the culture is creating the state. I think there was a moment of temptation way back, right, and I'll just talk about this very briefly and tell me what you think. But way back when, you know, the big disaster was the government schools, right, in the 1870s. And that was specifically put in because people were afraid of immigration, they were afraid of the Germans, they were afraid of the Catholics, and they wanted to impose a more uniform WASP culture on, uh, and of course, if you look at the presidential elections, they failed in that. Right? So, um, so I think at that moment, there was a real sense of temptation. People knew history, sorry, they had freedom, they knew freedom, they knew that 98% of people, kids were getting perfectly well educated, they knew that there was no need for government um, uh, schools. I think at that point, there was like, The culture, people were kind of lazy, they missed the ball, and then we got governments in. But it always happens, so it's hard to blame people individually. Government always grows. But now I think that it's uh, this use of force and the reallocation of resources at the point of a gun that is the nature of government is so fundamental and is so embedded in everybody's way of life that, I mean, we all know this from the debates to say if you want to live a purist libertarian lifestyle and not have anything to do with the government, you kind of got to seal yourself in a biodome somewhere around the Arctic, right, and eat your own toenails to survive, right? So we kind of know how hard it is to disembed ourselves from a sort of state-run society, and that's why, for me, it's like, forget it, who cares? I'll just, you know, use the, oh, the government invented the Internet. Great, let's have a radio station about freedom based on that. So I think that right now the government has way more control over the culture and is the prime mover, uh, of the culture, and it's again it 's not like people in the government are waking up rubbing their fu Manchu mustaches and uh, uh, you know going ha you know how can we affect the culture and it's just human beings have a very strongly developed instinct for power and subjugation, which is why governments are so dangerous, but I think that's running uh, uh, things a lot more than culture is, but tell me what you think
2: so so here's a a, a weird thought then um, maybe the statistic. In one way, you could look at that statistic in an opti- optimistic sense, because if if the um, if the coercion were really working, right, then we would have one of the lowest uh, prison populations in the world, right? I mean, if it were really effective,
0: you wouldn't have to put a bunch of people in prison. Well, yes, I, I agree with you, but uh, but also not. Um, the part that I agree with you is, yeah, ideally you want people to whip themselves, right? Uh, ideally, you don't want to even have to put up a fence around your cattle. You want them to be so frightened that they huddle in the middle of the field and submit to whatever you want, right? You shouldn't even have to drag them away to the abattoir and just go up and shoot them right there, and nobody tries to run. Absolutely, but of course that's impossible, right? I mean, because the more force and pressure you apply on human beings, the more resentment you build up, right? That's that's inevitable. Human beings fundamentally don't like to be ordered around. Um, I mean, un- unless you, you get married. But um, <laughs> human beings fundamentally don't like to be ordered around, right? So uh, you, that's why you have to create all this bullshit to get people to kind of say, oh, I'm not obeying this guy in a funny hat, I'm obeying God. It's like, oh, I'm not obeying this idiot policeman who with a grade 12 education... Uh, I'm obeying the state or the laws or all this kind of... So people, the patriotism and, and so on. People, uh, that's why you have to have something called an army so that you can differentiate it in people's minds in some bullshit way from a group of hitmen, right? I mean, the, you a group of sociopathic murderers who will go and kill anyone you point at. Well, that's a bit obvious, right? So you have to kind of invent all this stuff like the army and then you've got to have square-jawed, handsome actress play marines with you know, trembling, jaw-trembling, dewy eyed nobility and heroism and so on and all this kind of nonsense, just so that you can give people a reason to lie to themselves, right? That's what all this pageantry is for. But remember, of course, that the government is not one big blob, right? It's a bunch of competing uh, agencies, right, that there's there's only a certain amount of taxpayer dollars to go around. So the prison system always needs more prisoners, right? Uh, there 's a story and so it 's always going to be inventing crimes and it 's always going to be saying things are disastrous because otherwise that damn money goes to the Department of Defense or it goes to the Department of Homeland Security or it goes to the Department of Education, not to the students or anything, but you know to the bureaucrats so the government is a constantly like, think of it like the uh, the taxpayer is well, that 's a bad metaphor, but it 's kind of like a, you know those um Those baby eagles, their mouths wide open, they're all screaming for, for, you know, for the allocations of resources. And they do that by creating endless amounts of panic and fear, right? There's a story I was reading up here in Canada that um, a woman's daughter, uh, five years old, uh, diabetic, right? And so she takes her kid to public school, as she's expected to do, and it's ordered to do. And you are going to bring you, sort of serve up your kid to the brain mints factory and uh, they say, oh, sorry, we can't take your daughter because she has diabetes. So she's special needs and there's no funding. So we can't take your kid. Right. Uh, now, is there funding? Well, of course there's funding. I mean, there's this. If people could get quality education in the 19th century <laughs> when people were paying privately when income were about 150th what they are now uh, and given that there's been no uh, educational system in history that has ever had more money than government-run educational systems in the present. Is there money for special? Of course there is. Of course there is, right? But there's, there's just no money available because it's all going to the bureaucrats and it's all going to the special interest groups and it's all going to jaunts to Hawaii to study, uh, you know, how the pelicans educate their young and all this kind of stuff. So, of course, they're just going to take money away from the front line. So then they can go back and they can say, and so the parents write to their MPs and the MPs bubble it up to the ministers and everyone's all, oh my God, we've got to have special needs programs. We need more money. I mean, all they do is they hold the children hostage constantly. So I don't think that um, uh, each of these individual agencies, uh, they always have an incentive to cause more problems. But yeah, you're right as a whole, if people were perfectly obedient but it really is like you're taking a balloon and you're crushing it in your hand. At some point it pops, right? And the people don't care who are making money right now because they've made enough usually to, to live for the rest of their lives on the amount of money that sloshes around in the government. But, yeah, it's um, uh, it's uh, it, it, there's always a, a reaction, right? Violence always creates a reaction, which is why 9-11 happened, right? Violence that you do overseas will come back. I mean – you just don't get to go around shooting people, right? He who lives by the sword dies by the sword, you know? You know me, I love it with the scripture, so go ahead. <laughs> well,
2: uh, that's exactly why, you, you know, this whole idea of let's
0: go, you know, drop nukes on Iran or whatever, it couldn't possibly work either. No, and I, I, I think that, and uh, I'll go out on a limb here and say that um, uh, the war won't last. Uh, the, the, there's, there's not going to be any more invasions, Um there's no money, right? There, like, literally, is no money. Right? The Fed has stopped printing uh, how much money it's printing. It's not telling anyone how much money it's printing. The black market and the gray market are all shifting to euros. The Chinese are starting to sell their U.S. dollar holdings, which means that uh, they're going to have to increase the, – the Fed's going to have to increase the interest rate in order to get people to want to buy U.S. treasuries, which is going to raise the interest rates, destroy the real estate boom market, and, of course, Americans save only 1% of their income and are horrendously in debt, like 80% of their annual income, before taxes – Uh, So uh, there's no money. I mean, the the war, I I made this prediction, and I'll just pat myself on the forehead. Wait, there's going to be a huge slapping sound just for a moment. There we go. I'll just slap myself on the forehead for a moment uh, because, um, or pat myself, because uh, I said, you know, the war's going to end when they run out of money. Uh, And so now, of course, they've got this committee that's out there, and they knew what these guys were going to come back with and so on. But people are mistaking this for, oh, the will of the people is asserting itself and so on. It's all nonsense, right? I mean, if they went to the war against the will of the entire world's population, then there's no way, I mean, what the hell do the will of the people care, right? What's happening is they're running out of money, right? And and uh, it's the same thing that happened with, with Vietnam, right? You go off the gold standard and suddenly it's like, hey, let's not have a war anymore because we've got no money left, right? So the, the purpose of the war had nothing to do with, of course, freeing Iraq, but rather the transfer of, you know, uh, $500 billion dollars uh, from the treasury to private people of one kind or another, right, using the soldiers as excuses. So, I mean, that's always the purpose of war is the transfer of money. So, um, so yeah, I don't think uh, there's not going to be any more invasions for a while. Uh, I think right now people are just pillaging the treasury knowing that the gig is not too far from being up. But that's another conversation.
2: Right. At, at some point in time, it doesn't matter how fast you run the print, print presses. People just
0: know it's valueless. Yes, for sure, for sure, and uh, the American economy is so overextended. And uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to be a disaster in the long run because the people and the capital machinery are all still there. There's going to be a reallocation of resources, but uh, what's going to happen is there's going to be this great massive tearing off of, of government programs, right? And, of course, they're going to get rid of all of the services to the people on the front line. The people who are actually supposed to be receiving the services, they'll get rid of all of those, but they can't really raise taxes, and uh, they can't print more money, and they can't raise interest rates to get money hoovered in from overseas through treasury bonds. So, uh, you know, they really are in a bit of a corner, and that's, that's pretty clear. It's just that you and I don't know what, what's going on. We can't see through those 12 walls, right? But there's lots of people in the inside who have, you know, perfectly know exactly what the time frame is. All right. So now, I'm just going to put the call out there. I'm certainly happy to keep chatting. We did have a question from Charlie on the um, on the chat, but if anybody has any questions, there's a request microphone or you can chat in the window. Uh, if you wanted to uh, ask uh, uh, any other questions or have any sort of comments or issues or corrections uh, of Greg, not me, um, then I'm certainly happy to uh, hear them. Uh, did you have uh, Charlie's question there?
2: Charlie asks, or Charlie states, I have a question about the art thing. In the absence of the, of the major irrationalities of the world, what does everybody, stuff included, think art or the media will look like when people no longer need,
0: to just, need it to justify their prejudices and so on? Well, I think we're going to have a few less Mel Gibson films. I think that's pretty much for sure, right? Because well, what is going to happen is, I would say, art is still going to have an enormous amount of uh, stuff to work with because there are always frontiers of new technology wherein there is ethical questions that arise. Right. So let's say that we live in Libertopia, there's no government, and there is a DRO model or something that works well. What are artists going to do? Well, of course, they're going to keep alive the fear of governments. Right. I mean, um, this goes on for a, a remarkably long time. I have a friend who I grew up with who, whose mother used to tell him that if he didn't go to bed, old Boney was going to get him, and it turned out that Boney was Napoleon Bonaparte. This is 150 years later, 160 years later, that they're still using I still remember um, calling kids who were overweight. I didn't ever use it, but I remember kids being called when they were overweight fatty, fatty Arbuckle. And I only found this out much later, that this was a sort of disgraced comedian from the 1920s. This was in the 1970s, right? So um, the fear of, um, uh, of, uh, of governments will be in art for at least 500 years, I, you know, to go out on a ridiculous limb, right? Uh, we still have Um, movies about slavery. I remember watching Roots when I was a kid uh, with Kunta Kinte, right? Uh, The guy who ended up being on Star Trek. LeVar Burton. But, uh, uh, you know, 150 years after slavery, you began to have have lots of media about slavery. So there is still an enormous amount. Of course, however the government ends is going to be quite a heroic drama, mostly of the intellect and very little of, of anything else. But, you know, maybe there'll be the Free Domain Radio um, movie <laughs> down the road, you know, with with a uh, an enormous pink egg as me. Anyway, um, there is uh, uh, there'll be lots of stuff to talk about in terms of history, keeping people away from the boogeymen of the state. You have to teach kids new stuff, right? There's going to lots of art around that, and there's going to be new technologies that are going to need to be examined from an ethical standpoint. There's going to be lots of debate about optimization, there's like cloning and all this kind of stuff, uh, sentient robots and stuff. There's going to be lots of art around that kind of stuff, but. Uh, there'll be a whole lot less propaganda, I think. I, lo- I wonder how long the Free Domain Radio movie would be. Uh, well, let's just put it this way. I don't know, but definitely you've got to watch for the key turning in the lock when you go in, from the outside, right? So um, I've got to think there'll be oxygen masks, there'll be regular massages, um, there'll be bags that you can scream into, um, it'll be a mini series, twelve DVDs, and you know those twelve DVDs are all going to all going to have forty kilohertz uh, on MP3s on them, <laughs> so it'll be quite lengthy, I think. Um, no, you never know, right? You never know. I mean, this is part of uh, what we're doing here is we're engaging in a conversation that's going to last forever. I mean, I'm pretty conscious of that. We know whether that's right or wrong. I don't know, but I sort of get a strong feeling that wait, is there more? <laughs> and a still shot of Steph's forehead. Do you know, I was on a business meeting once, and I did a wonderful simulation of a a Mars landing by leaning into a red light with my forehead. Um, I even imitated the Houston thing, and that job went well. Anyway, um, but um, I'll I'll do it one day here, which you'll see. I've worked it out, quote, into quite a good degree of detail, so you might enjoy that. Uh, It's it's eerie uh, in terms, you really do feel like you're approaching the red planet. Um, uh, And if if the light is right, I even have polar caps, like ice caps on my forehead. Um, if you've got a good beam, so. But uh, no, I mean the conversation that we're having here is going to last forever, in a very sort of compelling way, and in a way that other conversations just don't, right? Nobody goes back and uh, I remember Gregor uh, when he read my novel. Almost uh, was not too uh, happy about the uh, lengthy debates that I included, which came from the British Parliament, right? He didn't think that was such a good idea. So those debates, which were about you know the beginning of the greatest war in history in terms of its murder rate. Those conversations die. I think these conversations—I don't know how long they're going to last for, but I think they might last for quite some time. I really do get a strong feeling about that, which is why I've been hiding all the personal evidence of any corruption in my private life, so that I look like the most moral man in history. So that, of course, has been a very key part of what it is that I've been doing. Ain't nothing to hide, anyway. So let's just see if there are other people who wish to have a chitty chatty bang bang with us. And uh, uh, we have a good chunk of people. Was there somebody who had? Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, uh, it's a choice, right? I love that stuff, and you can never please everyone, but uh, uh, if that was the only tough part you had at the ending, I think that's okay. Uh, Christina's got her hand raised, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> now, about those chores we talked about. All right, I'm just going to wait to Skype. Uh, Skype regularly vanishes, everyone. I don't think they're figments of my imagination, because you hear them too, right, sweetie? Okay, good, because they regularly vanish from Skype and then reappear back in this window. And let's not even get into the programming, which always bugs me, where somebody a programmer just says one one people rather than one person, rather than uh, you know going from singular to plural. I think programmers should always try and deal with it. So yeah, so I do think that uh, art is going to have still a great deal to deal with, but it just won't be um, all the propaganda that goes on. Uh, from here to the end of time, to do with war and to do with the virtue of the state and to do with how noble politicians and so on. So, tough in the sense, of sleepy. People on DIG love talking about global warming. I wonder if our Black Panther friend has given us any more conversations. Uh, uh, Did somebody end up adding Jared? Can you see him to the chat? He's in? Okay, good. Let me close this. I'm. Uh, I'm just going to keep rambling and chatting about nothing in particular until somebody raises their hand. Uh, not that I'm out of topics, but uh, I just want this to be a uh,
3: interactive,
0: interactive. Now let's see. That's four o'clock, so this is probably from last week. I can wait all day, people. I can turn this car right around. He's gone away. See, people think that I get bothered by the silence. I don't actually do mind too much, but uh, ah, here we go. Somebody is now just uh, saying, stop bullying me, just talk. Uh, can you try going ahead? Uh, this is M-A-T-I, I believe a birth date which indicates that you are nine years old. Can you, uh, can you hear? Matty, 23 0 11 Maddie 23 one 1996 so 23rd of January 1996. Give us the view from the post-kindergarten world. Can you hear me at all? I guess he must have just clicked. Uh, I have a question about the trolls. What is your personal breaking point for not engaging with people, Steph? Uh, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed it, even if nobody else did. Um, that's a, a, very good, uh, a very good question. Um, I, uh, I have actually, Christina and I did a little bit of this uh, today. Oh, is this Maddie? Are you on? I hear somebody breathing. Or is that just me, my brain? Yeah, okay. Uh, Christina and I did a, uh, we did an Ask a Therapist uh, this morning. It was more involuntary because I tried to get something my own way. Um, <laughs> so I had to sit down and lecture to about Ask a Therapist. Uh, or as I like to call it, interrupt a therapist. But uh, it is a very interesting question. I won't go over it in any great detail because we did have a bit of a chat about it this morning and Christine and I chatted about it for over an hour last night because there have been a couple of things sort of cooking around the board that have gotten me sort of exasperated and not because it's abusive uh, because those people don't last very long on the board, at least not uh, not if I catch them. But um, the... uh, the thing that bothers me, I think, more uh, than that, and there has been uh, a dip in participation a little bit, and certainly new people joining over the last while, but this could be tide coming in, tide coming out. We don't know. But my sort of threshold for um, for uh, dealing with people uh, is if – I don't mind if people are abrasive. I don't even mind if they're short. I don't even mind if they're rude. Um, But I do mind if they're – I mean, to me, manipulation. Like if they're just trying to manipulate me and bullshit me and if they're sowing what we in the business world call FUD, uh, F-U-D, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And sometimes that's the best sales strategy you can come up with if somebody else is heavily embedded into an account. But if somebody comes in and starts uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, that really bothers me, right? So um, this TX Island girl who's in, who's who's a communist – Um, there was a question about the problem of the commons which was uh, posted uh, a couple of days ago and uh, people said well, you know, there was the the problem of the commons is is because of government stuff and then somebody brought up the bison or maybe this guy's professor did and said, well, the bison were all killed by the capitalists and the government saved them by sticking them all in Yellowstone Park and so uh, then uh, the Somebody said, oh, you know, we, we gave a whole bunch of references and then somebody said, oh, it's, you know, I'm finding it hard to find a way to pin this on the government, which was, I thought, a t- tongue-in-cheek, ha-ha-ha thing. And then there was a long lecture from TX Island Girl about how um, uh, how we really shouldn't uh, uh, try and fit our the facts to our theories, but we should try and be empirical and we should try and be scientific and we should buy and this and that and the other, right? And... Um, Uh, I thought, so I did some lookups and I, you know, and she said also that the Indians used every piece of the the bison that was available and they didn't waste anything, but the capitalists wasted everything. You know, all the standard Rousseauian noble savage nonsense that you hear about how noble the Indians were before the evil white man came along and corrupted and, you know, killed everyone and so on. And so I posted some references which contradicted that whole theory and I said, well, uh, maybe you can post me your sources and we can compare notes, right? And I kind of knew damn well that she didn't have Uh, She was just coming in and giving us a pompous lecture about facts while having no facts of her own. That, to me, is where I just have no longer any interest. And she hasn't come back, and I did this a couple of, two days ago, I think. She hasn't come back with any responses. She's sort of fled the field, right? So when someone comes in and lectures me about uh, facts or lectures people who I think are making good arguments about facts and basic obvious methodology, you know, like, it's important to be logical and it's important to have references and blah, 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 Uh, if they come in and do that, and then you say, oh, okay, well, let's hear your references, right? And then they run away. Uh, I'm sort of done with someone at that point, right? Because then they're just sort of pompous and annoying. And uh, they're just sort of screwing with your head, right? Just coming in and being, giving you long lectures uh, while having nothing of substance to offer themselves. That, to me, is kind of annoying. So I don't have a lot of patience with that kind of stuff. Condescension really bothers me. <laughs> I mean, condescension really bothers me, um, i you know, and there's no way to say this without sounding sort of pompous myself, for which I apologize in advance, but I like to think that i've got a few brain cells rolling around and I spent over like spent twenty five years working on these issues I think that i've I think that that time has been spent, has been spent doing something useful I think that i've tried really hard to to after being a slave to other philosophers for for like 20 years i tried to start thinking for myself a couple of years ago because i felt i was ready you know i was able to snatch the pebble from my own hand and i don't think that it took me 25 years because i'm half retarded i think it's just really hard to to work out rational proofs for morality and so on without um, like without history uh, interfering with you either personal or or intellectual history uh, when other people have what seem like great arguments, it can take a while to feel confident enough to like, sort of take on Ayn Rand and Aristotle is not the easiest thing in the world to do, right? They're pretty smart people. So, so I, I, yeah, I kind of like to think that I didn't ha- it didn't take me 25 years to come up with original stuff because I'm kind of retarded. I think it's because it's really hard. So what I have a really tough time with is when people come in and just sort of state the obvious uh, and think that they're adding something to the debate you know uh, that that sort of really bothers me when people just think uh, you've spent 25 years bending your brain, reading. You studied this. You went to school. You went to graduate school. You studied this stuff. You you've worked on all these podcasts. You've do, done all these articles. You, you know, and and then when people come in and say, you know, well, uh, it's not the taxes are evil. It's the abuse of power that's evil. You know, you just got to kind of understand that. Or they say, you know, it's really important for you to have facts to back up your theories. Or it's really important that your approach be consistent. It's like Really?
3: Wow, you know,
0: (laughs) I I had never thought of that uh, idea behind logic, evidence, and consistency. I had never thought of that for 25 years, right? When somebody new comes into a field, like a young, let's just say a young person comes into a field, they get all excited, right? And and there's nothing wrong with that. That's all very good stuff, right? Um, But uh, it is important, I think, uh, you know, maybe, maybe to have some respect for people who spend 25 years hacking around with these issues and working very hard, uh, they either spend 25 like either I spent 25 years doing this because I'm too stupid to do it and it's really easy, in which case, why would you debate with me, right? Or I'm a smart guy who's worth debating with and I spent 25 years on these things. Therefore, maybe you should ask me some questions before just telling me that I'm wrong, especially if you have no evidence or rationality to back you up. But th- that that sort of side of things is, is kind of tough for me. And that, that you know, I don't want to sound vain because, you know, it still doesn't mean, I could still be totally wrong about everything. But so far I've been I fielded, Lord knows how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails and posts and thousands of posts and so on, of people trying to hack at the basic ideas, and I think that they've stood firm, right? Nobody's been able to uproot the argument for morality, Uh, nobody's been able to uproot the universal approach to the ethics of the state, nobody's been able to uh, come up with a better uh, theory of ethics than the one we talk about universality and reciprocity and so on, nobody's been able to uproot the arguments about religion or, or the state or the army and so on, so... You know, with a whole bunch of people uh, hacking away at it. We've had, um, you know, 120,000 downloads last month, and there are certainly some very smart people who are listening to these podcasts. I mean, some very brilliant people uh, who've all, you know, it's all out in the public domain. i got, like, uh, 80 articles on my blog. I've had 30 articles published on Lou Rockwell, thousands and thousands of readers, hundreds of thousands of podcasts, and it's got to be close to half a million by now. And uh, I think that they've stood up pretty well overall, right? I mean, I think that they, we have not had any sort of major disproofs in the uh, in the methodology or the idea. But uh, still, people come wandering in and they say, "Well, this is all silly because you haven't thought of this basic thing." And it's like, oh, you know, like if I get another email which says, "Well, sure, but if you get rid of government, there'll be nothing but civil war." That's just annoying to me because it's just it's kind of disrespectful, right? I mean, it's like, oh gee, I'd never thought of that. (laughs) How could I have ever thought of that? Like I was brought up on some alien planet where there was no such thing as governments and who would ever think that this might be a risk? So I would say that when uh, people come sort of wandering in who think that they're great mathematicians because um, they can do two plus two is four and they come in where we're talking some pretty advanced calculus and say your mathematical theories are stupid because they they smell like poo and they look like blue, right? I mean... (laughs) That's kind of annoying. That's why I did a a bit of a podcast on humility, just saying, you know, uh, I didn't sort of, um, I didn't sort of wander into Ayn Rand's philosophy or Aristotle's philosophy saying, well, uh, this is stupid, you know, because she was like Russian and he was like gay. So like, why would I bother? You know, (laughs) I I didn't do that. I just, you know, this, this, uh, these ideas blow me away. I'm going to absorb them. I'm going to learn them. I'm going to deal with these thinkers who I'm going to invest time and energy into understanding their ideas. I'm going to treat them with some respect uh, and I'm going to learn as much as possible. And then when I get to the edges of where I think their rationality breaks down, I'm going to try and extend it as best I can. Or if there's something at the core that I see is inconsistent, I'm going to try and repair it as best I can. But, uh, you know, it's just... I wish there was a little bit more respect for... um, for the philosophy, <laughs> I mean, for philosophers, right? Uh, and and I know that it's not, I know that it's an emotional thing. I know that fundamentally it's an emotional thing, right? It's, it's, it's an emotional immaturity. It doesn't have anything to do with me, and it doesn't have anything to do with respect for philosophy as a whole. It's just that people like to dominate other people, and they do that by trying to provoke insecurity in them, right? So this is why I get the kind of emails like, uh, oh, Steph, you're just so wrong about everything I don't even know where to begin. You're just so chock full of errors that it's it's almost embarrassing to have to point out even one of them, right? And we've had a troll on the board who's come back under a different name who's doing this kind of stuff. And Tuttle had a great uh, quote about that, which you might want to read on the board. It's about um, um, how how to avoid dogmatism or something like that. But um, uh, where he's like, oh, Steph, oh, every, every podcast, there's more error- errors than syllables. There's, there's more errors than bad jokes. There's more errors than tangents. There's more errors, eh, there's more errors than verbal ticks. Uh, and, and I don't even know where to begin cataloging. But trust me, Steph's just so wrong, it's ridiculous, right? And then people say, and I think rightly so, well, that's great. If there's you know, 550 podcasts, about a dozen errors per podcast, maybe you could pick one of these thousands and thousands of errors and, and let, let us know. And it's like, well, I don't have time for that. I, I had time to post uh, you know, a 15-sentence expostulation on how wrong Steph was, but I, I don't have time to actually post what his errors are. Just trust me, there's lots of errors, right? And that stuff is really annoying too, right? Because this is just obviously somebody who is an idiot, Like, I don't know how to put it sort of in a nicer way, and I certainly don't like to talk to anyone in that manner, but uh, this is just somebody who's... uh, It's a whole lot easier to say that someone's wrong than it is to actually sort of prove that someone's wrong, right? And so um, I've been sort of working out, and I'm not going to get into this part because we've got a podcast on it, but I've been sort of working out the right way to approach this because part of me just gets really angry, and part of me wants to be sort of zen and superior, so I've been trying to work out a sort of third route and so, basically, uh, Christine is going to handle it also. <laughs> so, um, let's see here. Oh, yeah, the avoiding dogmatism comments. Um, uh, I think this is just B.K. Holden, who's come back, right? And we just, this is sort of internal matter, so apologies to those in the future who don't have access to the board uh, 200 years from now who are listening to this. But, um, yeah, this is just some guy who came in and uh, is causing a whole lot of trouble because he's, you know, kind of a strange fellow. And uh, yeah, so he comes in, and, and this is sort of part of the whole condescending thing, right? So he sort of comes in and says, "Oh, you little children, you little children who are following the big chatty forehead, who whenever I say I have a question, what you do is you point me to a podcast, and you can't think for yourselves, and and you uh, you don't know truth from from fiction, and you just follow Steph's opinions as if they're gospel, and it's a cult, and all. Oh, I mean, you get this, we get this kind of stuff. It comes in intermittent waves, perhaps with every full moon. I don't know, but." Uh, We get this kind of nonsense, right, Uh, where people come in and, and they say, oh, well, you people are young and I am wise beyond your years and I have learned so much and I had a philosophy professor who said nobody under 40 should be allowed to take philosophy because you simply don't have the wisdom and I, from my high mountain of pure wisdom, I look down on you like little ants and blah, blah, blah. You get all this kind of stuff, right? And it's like, but that's great, you know, that's fucking great do you have an argument, (laughs) right? It's all great to have this attitude about how wise you are and how smart you are and how, you know, you're so right and, you know, everything that Steph says is just an opinion. But do you actually have an argument? Because that'd be kind of nice. Like, we try not to just have a whole bunch of attitude here. We actually try and talk about facts and and reason, right? So uh, do you have an argument? Uh, You know, I'm not asking for the world here, right? I'm not asking for somebody to give me a 15,000-line proof of how it is that I'm wrong about everything, but, uh, and I also don't ask people to read like 12 volumes of my moral theory. I've got moral theories that are like three pages long. I'm not asking people to, you know, subscribe to my PhD program in moral philosophy, uh, spend 10 years, and then they get to criticize me. It's publicly available. It's a click away. It's two pages long. That's all I'm asking for. Have a look at that. So uh, that kind of stuff is also just kind of annoying to me where people come in and uh, they just, it's just a whole bunch of attitude, right? Because, of course, um, what I was tempted to do in response to this, and this is not because anybody cares about this particular issue, it's just useful when you're debating with people as a whole because you run into this stuff, if you're a philosopher, you're going to run into this stuff quite a bit. But if somebody comes along and says, ah, you are just so young and you don't know anything about originality and all you can do is imitate other thinkers and just because Steph says something it's not true and you're a slave and it's a cult and blah, blah, whatever, then, you know, one thing you can say is like, wow, okay, you must be... um, First of all, it's kind of insulting. You can, and we, It's kind of insulting for people to say that, right? But another thing you can say, if you want to sort of play around a little bit, is you can say, wow, you know, so you're older, you've gone through this whole phase of um, being enslaved to somebody else's ideas, and now you've reached this nirvana of pure creativity. Why don't you share with me your wonderful creativity, all the thoughts that you've come up with on your own that are not derived from some other thinker? Right. And uh, then if they can come up with 50 thoughts, uh, fantastic. You know, listen to them. That would be great. Tell tell me about them. I'd love to listen to them. But uh, what you're going to get is a whole bunch more pompous stuff about, you know, how wise and wonderful they are. Uh, It's just a bunch of self-description. Right. Um, It's like uh, you're you're uh, you're (laughs) you're on eHarmony. Right. Uh, Or some some dating site. And some woman says, yeah, like I'm uh, I'm a supermodel. Like I uh, I model for Victoria's Secret. And uh, uh, every time I uh, walk down the street, uh, birds, they do fall from the sky uh, from my sexiness. And clouds, they do gather above me. And construction workers, they do burst into flames. And that's how ultimately hearty sexy I am. And just so I don't disturb everyone too much, I'm not going to use my Valley Girl voice for this. Uh, But I could. Don't get me wrong. Um, And then you say, well, that's great. Can I see a picture? (laughs) And they're like, no, I... uh, and, uh, you know, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hot. You know, I'm, I'm sexy. I'm like 36, 24, 36. I'm, I'm like five foot two, a pure primo, ultra-hardiness. Uh, great. You know, are there any pictures of you anywhere? Like, do you have any? No, I don't. Uh, I, at what point are you going to say, uh, you know, if you could just stop telling me how attractive you are and show me how attractive you are, you probably have a little bit more credibility in my book, right? I mean, it's just one way that you can do it. I mean, if I... Uh, the last metaphor, and then I'll, It's just We don't have anyone who's dying to talk here, right? No? All right, I'm certainly happy to be interrupted, but uh, the last metaphor that I'll use in this realm, which can be helpful for people who are in these kinds of debates, is it's sort of like this, right? So let's say that I'm some... Kung Fu teacher, right? And I certainly would say that I'm trying to get some ideas across in a conversation about philosophy, so let's just say I'm sort of a Kung Fu teacher, right? And and, uh, let's say I'm pretty good at Kung Fu, right? And I would say that when it comes to philosophy, I've got a few tricks up my sleeve. And uh, so I'm doing some pretty good Mr. Miyagi moves and so on, and then some other guy comes along uh, who's uh, uh, stands in the corner sort of sneering, right? And he says, ah, he waits till I leave, right? He waits till I leave, and he certainly doesn't talk to me directly, which is, a, you know, an important thing, right? If somebody doesn't come in, and I always invite people who've got strong disputes with me to come and chat with me on these shows. They just don't tend to show up a hell of a lot. So they don't. They wait till the teacher leaves, and then they sort of slither over to the students, and they say, Ah, he sucks at kung fu. He's, he's this is crap kung fu. His kung fu is just junky. Right, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's making it all up. He doesn't have a clue. You guys are being ripped off. Right, he's just coming in there causing problems. Right, as we talked about with this borderline personality, and and he's just coming in there sowing fear, uncertainty, and doubt. He's flooding people, and so then uh, I think it's reasonable for. Um, Uh, so then the teacher comes back right and the teacher hears this and he says oh well maybe you and I can spar for a little and uh, obviously I'd love to be your teacher if you know a whole lot more than I do that would be great I'll then just teach people an introductory course and then I'll learn everything from you and and then the guy says no I don't uh, I don't actually show off any of my sort of skills forget this Um, and it's like oh okay well I'll tell you what I'll leave and then you teach the students all the stuff that you know which gives you the right to say what a bad and ridiculous and foolish teacher I am and then the guy says, "Well, I uh, I don't uh, I don't do that." But but he's a bad teacher, and I know a whole lot more. It's like, well, can you demonstrate that knowledge? Can you at least maybe flip a flip a burger? Can you can you at least do that? Can you can you take down maybe my seven-year-old son? Uh, can you can you uh, can you uh, do? And can you show us one pose? Anything that indicates that you have some knowledge of kung fu. And uh, if he continues to resist, then you know toss him out, right because he's just he's in there causing a lot of trouble because he's an insecure pathological jerk, and he's disrupting the class he's showing hes and he's just dis, um, disrupting everybody's concentration, and people aren't learning, and they're not able to teach and, and of course, I'm learning as much as I'm teaching in this process, so I want to continue to learn so that's another. You just ask people for their examples, right, and so people are doing that with the trolls and I think that's kind of useful so.
2: Oh, um, you were talking about a moral PhD earlier, so Charlie's question is, speaking of the moral PhD, I have an argument for morality question. Does it only say that things are immoral and not make any claim about something that is moral? That's a little confusing for me.
0: Uh, no, it's not rehashing at all. It's another sort of question. Um, the The morality question is, is an essential question, and this is a lot uh, about the debate from prostitution that has confused people. Right, it's the original of course I'm not going to rehash the debate because there's Lord knows how many posts about it and podcasts but the um, uh, the the question started out as somebody who goes to a prostitute is that indicative of low self-esteem and what's happening is that people are having a very tough time since I did the podcasts on prostitution or for other reasons that I don't know about they're having a very tough time uh, making the case that it got nothing to do with low self-esteem to go and visit the leftover pickings from pedophiles right because of all of the prostitutes who are abused. So they're having a tough time saying that that's a high self-esteem activity. So what they're doing is they're making up another argument which says, oh, so you're saying that people, everyone who visits prostitutes is evil. Well, who are you to be such a dictator about ethics and this and that and the other, right? So um, the re- there's, of course, a very important reason as to why they're making up an argument that's never been put forward and then attacking that. It's because they don't like <laughs> the fact that they attacked an original argument, which I think has been fairly well established. But it does raise an important question about the argument for morality will certainly say that you know rape and murder and theft and so on and certain kinds of contractual fraud are corrupt and evil, right? bad things to do. The, then, the question then becomes, are there any sort of positive obligations, if I understand the question correctly, and I think I do, and let me know, Christina will let me know if it's not, but uh, what, what, are the, what is the nature of positive obligations? Like, uh, so uh, some guy's bleeding by a ditch and you just drive past because you're late for your um, your baccarat game with bond uh, so uh, do you have sort of positive obligations uh, to, uh, to aid and to help people and so on and I think uh, that you don't I mean you certainly in no way shape or form have any positive obligations unless you yourself are the cause of it right? Uh, or if you're intervening right? so this is some general moral theory we'll just go over very briefly um, I don't have to dive in to save you if you're drowning No matter if Phil Collins writes a song about me later, I still don't have to do it. But if I push you in, then I'm sort of obligated. Now, the other way in which I may be obligated is if, you know, you fall into um, a lake and you, ah, I can't swim, I can't swim, and there's a whole bunch of people crowding around, and then I say, don't worry, I'm going to save him, and I, you know, I rip off my T-shirt and dive into the water, and then I just tread water right next to you well, nobody's come to help you because I've said I'm going in to help you, right? So I've prevented, in a sense, other people from coming to help you and so on, right? So I would say there's certain, but of course that doesn't happen, right? I mean, it's just a theoretical bit of nonsense that's important for a wrinkle in the in the debate. But, uh, and I've talked about this in other sorts of areas, um, but people do want to help other people, right? I mean, people do want to help other people. How many of us, assuming we can swim, if we see a child... In a lake, who's drowning? How many of us are going to walk on past? If we can swim, um, if we're not pathologically terrified of water, you know, I mean, assuming that we have the ability to save that kid, eh, almost every human being in the entire world is going to jump in to save. It's not really an issue. I think that there are positive obli- Sorry, there are no positive obligations that can be enforced, and they don't need to be enforced. And of course, if if it does turn out that there's a real shortage of people who want to help other people then DROs will simply say, hey, if you saved this person's life and it's verified and you didn't start the problem, then I'm going to pay you ten grand because it's a hell of a lot cheaper for the DRO than paying out a life insurance. So there's lots of ways in which um, negative negative obligations, like a a sanction against doing something, falls into the realm of the argument for morality. But the the positive obligation aspect, um, who's going to enforce it, right? who's going to enforce it, right? That's always the problem. If you've got a government, then you can say, well, you have positive obligations to pay your taxes, and if you don't, we'll shoot you or whatever. But in a free society, who is going to enforce the positive obligations, right? And under what moral authority would they be able to do that, right? So if you decide not to give money to charity, can I go and shoot you? Well, of course not, because that's the initiation of the use of force, and keeping your own property is an essential right of any free society or any decent society. So if you decide not to give to charity, that's your issue. I may frown at you, I may disapprove of you, I may put your name on my website as somebody who didn't donate, uh, but uh, I can't go and shoot you for that, because then uh, I could. anyone could make up a charity, say that they wanted people to donate, and they <laughs> would then uh, be able to go and shoot anyone who didn't donate. So basically you'd be inventing organized crime, much in the same way that uh, the drug war does. So the thing that I would say uh, most fundamentally about this, and I'll turn it back to questions you may have, is that any uh, any moral theory kind of has to pass the coma test, right? Which means that you have to explain it long enough to put everyone into a coma. Have we achieved that yet? Is that coma? Signals? No coma? Okay. Yeah, one sec. Um, but the coma test is sort of important. I think it's fairly clear that a man in a coma can't be called evil, right? A man who's asleep can't be called evil. Uh, that wouldn't make any sense, right? Because uh, a there's no verification and b the person's not doing anything so so the problem with positive obligations is that they label people who are asleep or in a coma evil and I'm not going to go into why that's illogical because if you kind of don't get it then you probably won't get the, you won't appreciate the argument either but certainly a guy in a coma can't be evil and a dead guy can't be evil right I mean evil ends with life and so does virtue but uh, positive obligations would then condemn the person who's in a coma as being uh, as being evil. So I would say that uh, is one of the central reasons that you can withdraw from those kinds of conversations. Do, 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 do. Skype is maxing out my CPO at uh, 100% both processors. Um, hey, uh, both, are these both 286 processors or is one a 386? Just kidding. Did we, uh, so uh, Mr. L had a question? I certainly will. Let me just uh, find him in our plethora of welcome guests to our chat about philosophy. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio at www.freedomainradio.com. I'm just looking for our good friend Lapafrax so we can get a voice from across the pond. He is near the top, you say. Let me find him for me uh he's not near my top sorry uh just as i go through the uh yeah. ah yes third on mine see that's vastly different uh go ahead Uh hello yes go ahead
3: okay um well um earlier this week um our prime minister uh, blair um well basically made a speech saying that um immigrants to britain should basically assimilate to British culture, um, It's just made me think about um, basically libertarian views about multiculturalism. Um, okay, the libertarian society would really be a government sort of promoting one culture over another, but, um, you know, is it really... Um, You know, should a libertarian society really be multicultural? And really, um, well, basically, do you think there's any inherent good in multiculturalism?
0: Well, it could be. Can you tell me more about what you mean by multiculturalism?
3: Well, I think in this context, there was describing it as sort of different cultural um, uh, uh, cultures living side by side but still adhering to the same sort of legal system.
0: Um. Right. So here in Canada, there's been a petition from the Muslim Council that they be allowed to use Sharia law in the resolution of their own disputes within their own community, and that's uh, been rejected by the Canadian government. Is it, is it that kind of thing where you have a multiplicity of legal systems and a multiplicity of belief systems and so on?
3: Um. Well, I wouldn't say legal systems as such, but I'll certainly say cultural attitudes. Um, so if say, Muslims want to wear, or Muslim women want to wear their hijab or veil or whatever, then they should be allowed to or, or something like that.
0: Right, right. Well, I think that in a democracy, the real challenge is, is uh, to ask why this is occurring, right? I mean, you have this sort of stuff going on in the States as well where, for instance, whites—I think are a minority in California now—and stuff like that. And suddenly, whites are getting all up in arms about the problem of being outvoted. Right? And it's a fundamental issue: is the question of being outvoted by other cultures. Right? So, one some some of the um, some of the Muslim clerics have said that their goal is the sort of Hitlerian approach. Right? So Hitler said after this failed Beer Hall Putsch in the 20s, he said, "Well, that's it. I'm not going to try for revolution. Why should I? When I can take over the government through peaceful means, through gathering enough votes." Right, So one of the problems that's occurring, as we know and talked about before here in the Western world, is that, uh, you know, whitey ain't breeding, right? I mean, fundamentally and very frankly, uh, the uh, the white race is not breeding, or the Western sort of the wasp race is not breeding, and the other races are breeding, right? I mean, this sort of fundamental demographic fact There's nothing racist about it. It's just an observation of the birth rate in different cultures, right? So, And there's lots of reason for that, which we don't sort of have to get into, but they're definitely based on things like the state. But the question then becomes when other groups, right, when you've set up this structure that you have used to basically dominate other groups, both domestically and overseas, right, Um, when sort of Whitey has set up this government that benefits Whitey, right, corporate welfare, this and that, and does not benefit minorities. And we know that welfare is sort of like a cheap drug that people get addicted to that gets really rancid really quickly. So they've set up this institution that is benefiting Whitey And then there's a whole bunch of other cultures that are coming in who are saying, oh, great, voting, fantastic, right? So I remember when I was much younger, a friend of mine who's now a professor of economics was working on a campaign uh, where his English teacher was trying to run for some office, uh, some local office. And there was this uh, Indian guy, uh, like Indian from India kind of guy. And, uh, of course, uh, everyone who came to vote for this guy was, not everyone, but most of them were Indian. And they had... You know, literally, they were getting old women out of cars by the boatload and getting them to sort of wobble up these steps and going. and of course, these people probably didn't even speak English. They had no idea, right? They just go check next to this guy, and he won the election, right? And, you know, to me, it's like I could care less because I hate the whole system. But for a lot of people, it's like, okay, well, we've, we've been loosing this tiger on all these other people, and now the tiger is coming when these other people call it. And that makes people kind of alarmed and kind of concerned, right? So given that some of the Muslims, I mean, the Muslim is vastly uh, Muslim, uh, um, the Muslim countries or the Muslim race, not race, but the Muslim groups, vastly outbreeding the Western groups, right? So people are then going, well, now multiculturalism is a bad thing, right? Multiculturalism was a good thing for politicians when it got other people from other cultures to vote for them, right? But now there's a concern that the other cultures are becoming so dominant in society that they're going to take over the very political process, that has been used to sort of keep them down and and keep them oppressed and so on. And I think that's really the shift that's occurring, right? It's obviously, in a free society, it's no skin off your nose if some woman down the street wants to wear a burqa, right? You might look at it out of your window and say, well, that's kind of stupid. But, you know, what does it matter, right? And let's say that they open some store, some convenience store, and you think that the burqa is so offensive that you don't go and shop there. Well, that's fine. If enough people agree with you, then the shop will go out of business or or, you know, something else will change, right? So uh, I have been multiculturalism the more the merrier, right? Fantastic, you know, lots of races. I love different kinds of foods, lots of races, lots of cuisines, lots of dance, lots of fantastic, you know? But I think it's important to understand that um, the politicians are now able to find play in anti-multiculturalism because there's a general voter concern that other cultures are going to come in with enough votes, right? Not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of voter turnout per demographic group that there's going to be enough votes that they're going to get a hold of the political process and this huge ugly beast of power that has been sort of invented to benefit certain people is now going to turn against those who used to support it so it's kind of like someone else is getting a hold of the robot army and so now the robot army is bad right so that's that's sort of my thoughts on it but tell me what you think
3: okay well okay yeah I see your point um also, um well okay, I've been chatting to some other libertarians in the internet. Um You're kidding me. Traitor No I'm kidding, go on. Yeah, um Yeah, um and um well some of them have been sort of like refute, um refuting the old um sort of traditional um Open borders policy, saying that um, well, if you if you have too many people of sort of like a non-Western or uh, background, then it would um, then these people would be in the majority and and it would undermine the libertarian society. Um, do you think that is true or?
0: No, actually, and I got to tell you, it's got nothing to do with you, but I really get angry at libertarians who talk like this. I think that this is uh, absolutely, totally, and fundamentally uh, bigoted and stupid conversations that people have. And this is not you. I I don't don't mean to get mad at you, but uh, libertarians who talk about how we need to abandon uh, something like open borders or whatever because, uh, oh, it's just not going to work if other people come across... Is, it's just a load of claptrap, and it just shows you how how tough people have, uh, how tough a time people have sticking to principles sometimes. Right? There's no harm whatsoever in the absence of a state uh, if uh, if uh, everyone around is a different culture than than you and me. Well, what the hell does it matter? Right? Maybe we've got a language barrier. Maybe we need to learn that. But that's got nothing to do with the government. That's got nothing to do with laws. But what conceivable harm is it if I live in a street? And some Mexican family moves in, right? Or some black family moves in. Or some upper crust British, you know, prudes come and move in. What the hell does it matter? I go home, I chat with my wife, and we do this or that. I go out and I do these shows. What conceivable difference would it have, right? Um, The reason that people are concerned about immigration when they're libertarians is that they're concerned about being outvoted. Right. But they're libertarians, so they should be against the powers of the government that people are voting for anyway. You're not going to be able to get rid of the problems of immigration by giving the government more power, because immigration is only a problem because the government exists and has power to begin with. Right. I mean, there was almost no issue when it came to immigration as a whole in the 19th century in America, when millions of people came over from Europe and Eastern Europe and other places. And all they had to do in Ellis Island was if they coughed up on someone, they had to spend a week or two in uh, quarantine. That was about it, right? There was a uh, woman, what's her name, Faith Popcorn, who's some nonsense futurist or whatever, right? But she says that um, uh, she was from, her, her great-grandfather was from uh, from Italy, and uh, h- his name was Papagione or something like that, right? And so they came in and they said, hey, hey, what's your name? The guy said, hey, what's your name? Hey, it's Papa John there, right? Or something else. Like, I don't know what the hell that means. And the guy just wrote down popcorn. Because right? he couldn't write. This is how funny it was back then. No passports, no papers. Hey, what's your name? I'm going to write it down. In you go and do what what you will, right? And that's how America used to work. That's when America had this incredible, right, give me your tired, you're hungry, your huddled masses You need to breathe free, that's when America had some sense of what it meant to be a free country. Now, there's all these landmines of state power that are set up that people are didn't have, libertarians <laughs> seem to don't, they don't like it when the whites have control of it, right? Which is currently, right? They say we should have a smaller government. But then it's like, oh, well, we can't have open borders because other people will change our culture. Well, bullshit. Some and Not you, right? But some Mexican family moves in down the street. That's like saying, now I have to eat enchiladas every night in my own house. What the hell does it matter what they cook? I go and cook whatever I want. That's freedom. There's no difference whatsoever unless the government gets to mandate what everybody eats, right? If the government gets to mandate what everybody eats and I don't like enchiladas, then of course I'm going to resist Mexicans coming in. But what the hell does that? I mean, it's only because of the government. It's not because of the Mexicans. You don't deal with the symptom and think you're dealing with the problem. And I get mad, not at you, but at libertarians who start uh, caving on this whole immigration issue because uh, they, they somehow think that uh, if we keep, if we give the government now additional powers, right? It's so, oh, it's so hypocritical. Fundamentally, it's so hypocritical. It's like, well, we don't like the, and it's racist fundamentally, right? We don't like the government because the government does a whole bunch of things that we don't want. Oh. But you see, with immigration, now we want the government to do something that we want, so we want to give it more powers. Well, go to hell, I say to those libertarians. You know, Just don't even think that you have a clue what freedom means or consistency to principle means. So sorry, this was a—it's um, uh, <laughs> not a rant against you. I just got to tell you that um, a free society has nothing to fear from people from other cultures coming in. It can only be enriched, and of course, if you don't, uh, like other cultures, then you can go and buy uh, a house in a neighborhood populated by people like yourself. But it has nothing to do with uh, uh, with government power, and it's so sad to see how libertarians run away from the principles of minimizing government power when it comes to dealing with other cultures. It's small-minded, it's pig-headed, it's parochial, it's 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 petty, uh, and it's it it makes a lie of the whole movement. It's like those people who support the Iraq War. So anyway, sorry, that's not to do with you. That's just sort of. Uh, it really bothers me. And I wrote an article about this on Lou Rockwell that got me precisely zero. I normally get 50 responses to every article that I put on. I got zero responses to an article that Wilton and I wrote about uh, about um, immigration. It's just something that people don't want to talk about. It's radioactive.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that's it for now.
0: Yes, yeah, sorry, I hope I didn't hurt your ears. You as <laughs> just, these uh, libertarians, bother me about this, right? It's like, state is bad. Oh, I want the state to do this, though, so it's good. All right, so we are coming up for two hours, which doesn't mean that we have to end. Uh, I am on the verge of being indefatigable, but uh, I don't want to test everyone's patience. But if you have questions, issues, comments, problems, and so on, I am more than happy to let you have the mic, but you have to ask me. And, actually, I prefer it if you beg. But you can just ask. That's all right. That's all right, too. So, we have, uh, oh, good heavens, somebody asked to talk at 420. <laughs> it's, oh, it's, oh well, that's why I didn't go back to him. He went offline. That's right. All right. So, let's see if we have anybody who is dying to uh, get me to yell again. Anyone else? Sorry, you think? Uh, I'm in college because I'm afraid of independence. Ah, excellent, excellent. Well, that's good. Um, (laughs) Good. Right, right. right. Uh, Sorry you don't have a mic. I hope everything's going okay there, and uh, thank you again for sharing that dream. It was wonderful. Um, We do, uh, and we've had some dreams posted recently, which I think would be interesting to analyze. I certainly get quite a kick out of analyzing the dreams, and it seems to be some of the more popular podcasts. So maybe I'll get some more to, uh, to those, but that was a, um oh, not him. You're not the guy from the subway yet, are you? No? Okay. The tw- one. Yeah, oh, he is the guy from the subway guy. Okay, good. Well, welcome. I like subway too, so. There's our commercials. I knew it wasn't going to be long until. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't post the dream about the... Yeah, you posted the dream about the going up the, uh, the bus with your father uh, up the mountain. It was a great dream. Still don't know what the hell the, the uh, I still don't know what the big bird thing was, but uh, that's something which, if you can clear that up, that would be fantastic. Well, people won't know what the hell we're talking about if they've just joined. Tell me about the big bird. Oh, he's got a question? Oh, okay. Big bird. What should I do? Well, I, that's a little open-ended, other than donate. Um, actually, no, if you're a student, you don't have to worry. You can just send me a kidney instead. Yeah. Look, I mean, um, this is a you know, this is like Uncle time, right? So I don't know. Um, uh, there's no need to do this stuff right away. I mean, this is nothing to do with philosophy. This is just sort of my personal opinion. If it's of any use to you, but I took um, 18 months off after high school before I went to um, to university or college. I guess you'd call it in the states. Um, if just I had no money, right? I mean, my I was sort of been uh, self-supporting since I was about 15, and I just had no money, right? So I couldn't go to university. And I also wanted a break from school. I was kind of sick of it. So uh, I went and gold panned and worked up north and, and uh, state claims and lived out of a tent for 18 months or not all of it, but for a good chunks of it. And so that, uh, and that, that then when I got to university, I really wanted to be there, right? Cause I (laughs) I really sort of saw there's no reason. Of course, you've got a lot going on in your personal life, which we've talked about before but there's no reason why you have to go plowing into a school. Uh, for heaven's sake, don't do it if you're not enjoying it, right? I mean, there's there's enough stuff that you have to do in life that you don't have to make up stuff that you have to do as well. So uh, I would definitely recommend that uh, you not feel obligated or constrained to go to school because if I don't go to school and if I don't take these classes right now, I'm flipping burgers for the rest of my life, right? That's not the case at all. You can take time uh, go back to school a little bit later, Um, the more important thing at the moment might be to get out out from under the thumb of your dad in particular, but your parents as a whole. I would say that the independence that you're going to gain from not having Joe psycho roommate and not being under the thumb of your dad who's yelling at you to save, what, 60 bucks instead of 40 bucks every week, I would say that the freedom that you're going to get out of getting out under the thumb of your roommate and your parents, not in that order, is uh, going to be worth a hell of a lot and to save some money, to, to get out from under this kind of control situation, and uh, to um, to not worry, you will do the right thing at the right time, and your gut is telling you right now that being in this college at the moment is not the right time, is not the right thing to do. I would say that if you're close to the end of a semester, it's worth finishing it off. I mean, I would say that, right, because otherwise it's a, it's a sink, right? At least get some credits so that if you go to another school or come back to this school later that you'll have... Um, completed some aspect of it. I'm not saying a full year, but uh, you know, if you've got exams to take through to December, it would probably be worth taking those. But you know, the, the, the freedom is key, right? Freedom is key. You cannot force yourself to go to school because you're terrified of flipping burgers for the rest of your life. That's not being free. Right? Freedom is a very delicate condition that has a lot to do with uh, having self-trust and knowing that you're going to do the right thing at the right time. But uh, don't be in school because you're frightened of the consequences of not being in school. That's not being free. Uh, So you have to give yourself that liberty to make choices. And then if you choose to be at school, it's a choice. And then it's going to be a value to you. But if you're just there because you're frightened, then you're not free. And I also will say that you're probably not likely to be as successful as you will be if you're really motivated. I need to transfer because it's too expensive here, but transferring to a cheaper college means being closer to my family, a lot closer. Well, no, I'm not saying out of the frying pan and into the fire is the way to go, right? because you're still close to your family because you're dependent upon them for certain amounts of money for school, right? So that's not a, a good thing. Um, you might want to think outside the box, right? I mean, this is sort of ridiculous. I mean, this is just ideas that pop into my head. These are things I was thinking about at the end of, college, uh, at the end of high school. Um, you could join the Merchant Marines for a year. No, seriously, why not? Right, you could uh, you could go and be a scuba instructor in, in Barbados for a year. You could, I mean, there's tons and tons of there, there's in as many professions as there are, you know, atoms in the world. Sometimes it seems so. You don't have to sort of say, okay, well, my choice is I'm either going to be in school or I'm going to be flipping burgers because both of those at the moment kind of suck for you, right? But if you think outside the box, and there's tons of websites which will hook you up with interesting jobs, or tons of of chat rooms and boards where interesting jobs get posted and talked about. Uh, you could go and teach uh, English in Japan for a year. They're dying for people out there. Uh, Thailand or Vietnam or Cambodia, tons of tons of requests for people to teach English. There's tons of things that you could do that would be a hell of a lot more fun than going to school when you don't want to or flipping burgers instead, right? So, um, yeah, you, if your sister teaches English in Japan, yeah, you're a nasty sister. I think I remember that. But uh, you could ask her to hook, uh, hook you up with the people she talked to uh, to get that, right? Go do something fun. Like you're young. Don't be locked in a prison of school right now if that's not where you want to be. And don't look at your only other alternative as living at home or of um, of doing some minimum wage job. Like you're young. Seize the day. Have fun. Uh, go and do something wild and different and exciting and travel and uh, expand your horizons and breathe free. You know, that's some amazing things to be able to do when you're young because it becomes a lot harder to do that stuff when you're older because you're not allowed. So <laughs> actually, no, Christine is always saying let's travel. But um, don't join the army. Don't join the army, whatever you do. Don't join the army. Go back and live with your parents before you join the army. Uh, you can get therapized out of parental contact. You're uh, going to have a tough time uh, surviving any deployment in the army uh, psychologically and with your soul. So don't do that. But listen, just open your mind. And it's something that I wish people had told me more about when I was younger, right? Just think outside the box, right? I mean, there's a guy I know who quit his job at the age of 45, Uh, and he's now sailing his boat uh, in the Caribbean. And he fishes, and he lives off that. And uh, he does a little bit of consulting on the side for, you know, basic things. He he homeschooled his kids on the boat, right? There's so many things that you can do in life that are outside the box, right? Remember that thing that Frank Zappa said that somebody posted on the board It says, you can do anything with your life. And if you end up with some boring life because you believe the nonsense that everyone told you, well, that's a bit of a waste, right? So... Uh, there's lots of things that you can, uh, lots of things you can do, but, uh, you know, this is the essence of freedom It's just to recognize that you are in control of your own destiny and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to get out of bed in the morning, Right. Uh, you don't have to do anything. You, know, you can step in front of a train tomorrow. You can become a pilot. Uh, you can do whatever you want. A lobster fisherman, as somebody posted. You can do anything that you want, but don't be constrained by the habits and the histories that you were just raised with, right? You can do anything with your life. And the more uh, powerful and wonderful things that you can do with your life, the more you will free other people, right? We can free people with example as well, right? So, um, if you do define some way, you know, this would be my suggestion. If you want to add a bit of shine and virtue to what it is that you're doing, let's say you end up going to teach uh, English in Japan, nowhere near your nasty sister, you know, I would say, you know, get five friends and tell them about it, right? So all this kind of stuff could be fantastic. I want to start a contract rating business. Yeah, hey, that would be pretty cool too. But, uh, um, yeah, uh, hey, I got no I get no issues with that. If you can pull that off, I think that would be fantastic. So, um, uh, yeah, contract rating business would be fantastic. Uh, there's a business idea uh, that I've had, uh, the Meter, which is where you rate people's uh, virtue and trustworthiness uh, using some various techniques on the web. Uh, it's sort of like eBay, but for uh, business contracts and ethics and honesty, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, I just, you know, right now, that's sort of not my focus because I've got a bunch of other things to do. But... but uh, uh, and I'm going to steal it. Yeah, hey, you know what? Uh, steal away. Steal away. I'd rather see a good idea get implemented than, uh, than not, right? So people can take my short story ideas as well from the art podcast right away. You know, I'm not going to do it, so uh, I'm not going to hold on to it uh, tight. So, Okay, so let's see. We are cooking at around two hours and ten minutes, eight minutes. So uh, if you have a question, issue, comment, problem, correction. Mock of the accent on the forehead. Please uh, feel free to click on raise microphone or now sex333 girl. I'm sure she has something to say. (laughs) Oh, is that Greg? (laughs) All right. So if you have any questions or issues, you can click on request microphone. I really appreciate the uh, number of people who've come in to chat with us today. Freedomainradio.com. Also, um, YouTube, Y-O-U-T-U-B-E forward slash dot com forward slash free domain radio if you want to see the uh the forehead in motion um, but uh, there is um, the cheeses in the bag I gave you the cheeses in the bag don't you didn't you hear that <laughs> <coughs> that's very nice how do you know greg's blowing you a kiss so you're making that causal when it may not be <laughs> All right, well, um, the the fans are peeling off one by one because now Christina is leaving. Um, I'm, of course, sorry that we didn't get a chance to be enlightened by our Jamaican friend uh, lately. Um, Hang on. Good night. (laughs) As we dissolve into massive silliness towards the end of the show. Oh, it was so disciplined for so long. Actually, that's far more disciplined than I normally get in the show, so that's all very good. (laughs) All right, so uh, I'm going to just check through uh, one more time. I'm certainly happy. Um, oh, we didn't? Oh, maybe I was in a different... Uh, I typed in goodnight when somebody said goodnight, beautiful, to Christina. Uh, so, net neutrality. All right, we're going to be a little bit more before food. 20 minutes? Half hour? Okay. Uh, all right, so um, Mr. G, I'm going to de-silence thee from the throne of power. Um, go ahead. Oh, Skype has stopped responding. Try now, I heard a click. Okay, go ahead.
2: ahead. Oh, uh, no, that wasn't uh, my suggestion. I was just uh, repeating uh, what somebody else had uh, dropped in there.
0: Oh, so you don't know anything about uh, net neutrality?
2: Mm, Not a whole lot other than uh, I'm not for it.
0: Right, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, as far as I understand it, it's, oh, sorry, I'm going to have to just go through a, a <laughs> just unmute it, unmute everyone. Uh, as far as I know, uh, it's this idea that you're going to get uh, priority access through the Internet and through the pipelines for certain groups, uh, and then other people are going to be shunted to the sidelines uh, so that um, they can not have as access, as much access or as download as fast and that kind of stuff, Right. That's sort of my understanding of it. And it's, you know, it's perfectly inevitable and it's perfectly natural. I mean, the Internet is an enormous um, conduit for uh, thinking that's outside the mainstream, right? I and mean, certainly that's where we are, right? So there is um, uh, there is uh, no doubt that the uh, government is going to try and do what it can uh, to, um, uh, to mess with the Internet, right? I mean, it's one of these accidental inventions that has been um, – Uh, has been a thorn of the side, right? I mean, the fact that we're all communicating uh, is because there's no major media outlet that would ever carry the kind of stuff that we talk about here, It's just completely inconceivable, right? I mean, and probably illegal. But we can talk about it, and there's tons and tons of other conversations. I would say that the vast majority of my libertarian education is achieved uh, through the Internet, because um, I like conspiracies. No, it's achieved through the Internet um, simply because I can't get, you know, other than John Stossel once in a while, I can't get much from the mainstream media that has anything of interest to me. And once you've educated yourself about the sort of nature of the media and the powers that be, it becomes a whole lot less compelling to go and look at the nonsense that they pump out through the media. So I have no doubt that they're going to try a sort of soft censorship. That just seems to me completely inevitable. Uh, they simply don't have the resources to go and monitor everyone who talks about anything, right? Uh, it's just impossible. Google alerts don't quite capture it the way that you need to. And of course, uh, can you imagine uh, if some poor uh, homeland security agent was was um, <laughs> was told to go and uh, uh, go and check out freedomainradio.com because we think that they might be people who are advocating the overthrow of the state there? And he's like, "Oh, really?" 550 podcasts, are you kidding me? Do I really? Because you can't search it, right? It's not transcribed. And again, was not a big plan. I don't think anyone's doing that. But um, that would make it's it's like, okay, now uh, he does you know, an hour and a half, an hour three quarters of podcasts a day, so you're going to need to stay on top of that. And it's like, but I can't take it. <laughs> I mean, so I, you know, this kind of stuff with podcasts and other ways, which can't really be monitored in the way that sort of emails and, and text can be, uh, and the YouTube videos and stuff like that it 's uh, it 's obviously unmanageable right when it comes to from a communication standpoint so yeah there 's going to be a kind of um, a soft censorship that they 're going to try and achieve and then on net neutrality of course it 's it 's completely partial uh, that 's sort of my understanding of it so and of course it 's you know it 's technical and and it 's uh, people nobody understands it it 's like the fed so uh, yeah it doesn 't surprise me at all that they 're trying to do this kind of stuff but um yeah, this is somebody, who's deaf. if you listen to them all, you might convert him, right? <laughs> Maybe that's the other thing that might happen as well, right? So, um, the net neutrality people are more worried about, somebody says, AT&T or Verizon taking over rather than the government. They want the government to watch the companies. Yes, well, um, that's, I mean, that's just people's, this is fantasy, and I'm, uh, this is a podcast topic for this coming week, so I don't want to, um, uh, I don't want to experience premature elaboration, so to speak, but, Um, people do have this bizarre fantasy that there are these wise, kind, virtuous shepherds out there that are almost like a totally different species from the rapacious evil capitalists. Uh, And we can trust the wise shepherds with all the guns, but we can't trust the capitalists who can't force us to do anything but have to appeal to what we want. Uh, And uh, this is one of the reasons that I hammer so hard about the virtue of the state and the virtue of the cops and the virtue of the the soldiers is that really the only way forward is for people to give up this fantasy that there's a group of people out there who are just so wise and virtuous who can use power for everyone's benefit, and then there are these other people out there who don't have any guns, who can only advertise to you and appeal to your self-interest, who are the real people you have to worry about. If we can't get people to understand that everything they say about the capitalists is equally, if not far more true, of the um, of the politicians... Uh, we're never going to get anywhere, right? That's why I keep hammering about the state. That's why I keep hammering about God because they're all interrelated. And fundamentally, it's why I keep hammering about the family because we have, to, uh, we have to get to a state where we can only derive judgments of virtue based on what people actually do, not on the bullshit that they tell you about themselves, right? But we have to get empirical, which is why the trolls aren't going to last, right? Because we have to get empirical. So a troll says, uh, Steph's wrong and I'm right. It's like, great, let's hear the proof. Ah, I don't give proof. It's like, we'll get lost, right? A politician says, well, I'm all about virtue and this and that. It's like, let's see the proof because you use guns to get people to do what you want them to do and you don't appeal to people's self-interest but rather to to their hatreds and fears and uncertainties and doubts. So um, we have to get empirical when it comes to ethics, most fundamentally, and just stop listening to people and start watching them. And... uh, um, So this net neutrality thing is like, oh, well, we're now afraid of capitalists, so Verizon is going to be a bad person to manage the Internet. But the government, you see, is completely above self-interest and control and and never, you know. So the fact that the government is a legally enforced monopoly of whatever the hell it does is uh, just so much better. But boy, those nasty capitalists who have to compete with each other and who can't, can't force us to do a damn thing, those are the people we really have to worry about, right? So. Uh, yes, like that movie of the independent car maker Tucker. It was uh, not the best movie in the world, but certainly a, a very interesting, uh, a great soundtrack by Joe Jackson, by the way, shaping right, great song. But um, yeah, this uh, this stuff is uh, is quite common out there that people have this fantasy that the government is full of benevolent, wonderful people who are going to keep them safe from all the rapacious, evil capitalists and so on. And I actually remember um, this is many years ago. I mentioned this in a podcast once, but. I had a, a director who was directing me in a scene study uh, of uh, I was playing Stanley Kowalski in uh, A Streetcar Named Desire, and I was having trouble, you know, with certain emotional aspects of the role and the brutality. Yes, Stella, absolutely, only more of a high sort of girly shriek. But um, and he was saying, well, you know, picture this. You know, I said, picture that. Uh, you know, you you've had everything taken away from y- you and you're you uh, you know, you're out on the streets, you've lost your wife, you've lost your house, you've lost your job, you've lost your money, and so on. And I stand to you, and I stand in front of you, and I point over to the guy uh, down the street, and I say, it's his fault, this happened because of him, right? And he said, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd get mad at you, right? This is sort of even way back when I was like, this is when I was like 20 or whatever, 22. And uh, he said, well, why the hell would you get mad at me? And it's like, well, if you're pointing at him, you're the one who did it, right? <laughs> you know, that old thing about fighting, he who denied it, he who supplied it. Uh, And this is, of course, the people who are pointing out all of the uh, evils of capitalists are the ones who are actually uh, the ones who are performing all of the evil deeds that they, uh, yeah, he who smelt it dealt it. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And the most important one that you have to watch when you're a kid when it comes to gas is silent but violent. If you can't hear it, it will in fact overwhelm you. So. Uh, so, yeah, I mean this uh you know they 're going to cash in on this kind of stuff people 's fear, and oh, the private corporations are going to take over the internet it 's like but the internet is only useful because of private corporations right and so anyway it's uh, it 's just funny right I mean this is just the same nonsense, and then as long as they can get you to hate the people who don 't have the guns who appeal to your self interest like the capitalists uh then to to that degree the people don 't even think through that to that degree they 're responsible for their own enslavement for sure so. The politics is more fun about be- when you convert it to font jokes. Well, that's very true, as long as we're on a Skype chat and not all in the same conference room, for sure, because then it really does sound like a uh, Canadian brass tuba section, so. Well, I've actually thought that it would be a, uh, a wonderful thing to do a uh, anarcho-capitalist reality show, right, and follow somebody through the political process and so on. Uh, I think that would be very, uh, very interesting, so.